Hello and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. My name is Rory McNamara and today we are going back in the time machine to look at the first few weeks of November 2001 in the WWF. And yes, it remains for WWF, non-spoiler, spoiler alerts, including the Survivor Series 2001 pay-per-view, where it all begins again, again. Yes, that again. Joining me today, well, I've got the three pillars, very appropriately. I've got Mr. Chris Lacey here, and he's still the king of extreme. Yeah, fucking sure am. Despite being holed below the Mason-Dixon line, Eric Landstrom has made it. Yeah, uh, finally trying to get back here. Uh, I've been trying to get back into uh, the, the building since they locked me out a few months <laughs> ago. And I thought that I thought I saw an unlocked window up on three, but I haven't. Ron Reese hasn't gotten here yet to boost me up to push me. And so hopefully that happens by the end of the episode. You and about 70 others. If only you were in super giant ninja mode. Anyway, and Chris White is here feeling very smug right now. Or maybe not, eh, Chris? I mean, definitely. It, depends how you, it really does depend how you want to look at it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm more apologetic than smug, I think. <laughs> oh, big guy with the wrestling company that survived. Oh, look at him. <laughs> He's going to break, break out mom and pop any second, isn't he? So, as you all know, this is the part where I would normally tell you everything that's happened in the Raws and Smackdowns leading up to the pay-per-view, but there's very little to actually discuss, bearing in mind that this is a pay-per-view that was predicated on the whole idea of the company going out of business. You'd think they pay a little bit more attention to that sort of thing. Alas, they have not. It makes our job a lot easier. We could race through it. Although there is one thing that Mr. Lacey had requested we discuss, and he is quite right on that score. So, let's bash through it, shall we? On the first Raw of the month, Vince McMahon, again, you'd think he'd be a little bit more concerned about his company going out of business. You know, what would Daddy Dearest, what would Granddaddy Dearest say? But instead, he negated the entire relevance of the supposed storyline by saying the only thing we needed to worry about is that somebody from the Alliance was going to jump ship to the WWF. And that somebody was supposedly Stone Cold Steve Austin, leading to two two weeks worth of television where the, again, the supposed outcome was barely mentioned at all. In dispatches, if it was lucky. And we had Austin interrogating various members of the Alliance, wondering if it was going to be them. And I must say, when he was shining the spotlight in RVD's face, those dilated pupils, eh? <laughs> that it was quite amusing. But otherwise, we really were just marking time at this point. And then on the Go Home Raw, or Survivor Series 2001, italic, bold, underline, the Rock and Austin shared a segment that has received a lot of plaudits online and in the sheets, but I've got to say it did very, very little for me. The supposed gravitas of the situation was tossed aside for the Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin, supposedly mortal enemies, locking horns, and they chose to sing the Boston song that isn't more than a feeling. And yes, I do mean the Boston song that isn't more than a feeling and wasting away in Margaritaville. And that was pretty much it. Wonderful. Go home raw. The company could be non-existent in six days' time. I understand why a lot of people like that segment, but it won't be coming up in segment of the year in a month's time, unless anybody else votes for it, which I hope they don't. But Lacey, there was one segment you specifically requested, and we do need to talk about that before we hit the pay-per-view. And I'm going to let the good burgers of this podcast listen to it right now. I, I want you to know that I was down on my knees because I know that you're used to men kissing your ass, Vinny. Every time you walk in the back there, there's Patterson and Prisco. Oh, what a great idea you had, Vince. 
You like men kissing your ass, don't you, Vince? Huh? Because that's what you're all about. A billionaire. The billionaire Vince McMahon. The creator of sports entertainment. I've waited so long to see you face to face like this. And I've waited so long to tell you to your face that I hate your stinking guts. But it's not just me. It's your children that hate your stinking guts, Vince. And at Survivor Series, your children are going to do to you what I have waited my whole life to see somebody do to you, Vince. You are, so help me God, the most disgusting, vile son of a I've ever seen in my life. You took Hulk Hogan's blood and you built Titan Towers. You stole Bret Hart's dream and with that money bought yourself an airplane with WWF all over it. You did that and you know it you son of a You stole Shawn Michaels' smile took your company public and made yourself a billionaire. But not a self-made billionaire like you like to tell everybody you are. Oh, no. See, you're a billionaire on other people's hard work. Your father, your father, Vince McMahon, your father went around the country and shook the hand of every... You know I'm telling the truth, don't you? You know in your heart, I'm telling you the truth, that your father shook the hand of every promoter in this country and swore to them that he'd never compete against them, that his son would never compete against them. And when your father died, you competed. And with your ruthless, merciless, take-no-prisoners attitude, you drove everybody out of business, didn't you, Vince? You ran all the competition to the ground and you stole all their ideas and you made yourself a billionaire out of it. And you know whose ideas you stole the most, Vince? You stole mine. See, I don't give a damn about Don Owen and Sam Muchnick and Jim Crockett. I, I care about what you did to me and my family. How you stole my dreams. How you stole my legacy. How you stole everything that ECW represented. Because while Doink the Clown had a, a green hair and a rubber nose, Stone Cold Steve Austin was drinking his first beer in ECW, damn you. While Bobby Heenan and Gene Oakland were dancing around singing Tootie Fruity, ECW was producing the edgy TV that you named Attitude. Oh, we got Attitude. You got nothing, man. What you got is my ideas, and you stole my life, my money, my legacy. Screw you. Screw you and your family. I'll tell you something. Your old children hate your guts. And on Sunday, your children are going to get even with you for everything that you stole from me, for everything that you stole from them. You flaunt your affairs in front of your wife. You flaunt your affairs in Playboy for your children to read, you So what you heard there was Paul Heyman finally getting to deliver the speech 
not a promo, the speech that he has no doubt practiced in front of the mirror with a hairbrush for many years. And let's face it, what else is he going to use one of those for? I'm into hairbrush, but mirror could apply as well. Everything he ever wanted to direct towards Vince McMahon. And yes, as you might have heard, Vince McMahon was there in person, taking all of this, having his entire modus operandi, to be polite, of sports entertainment, ripped down before his very eyes. Even Vince McMahon's affairs were drawn into things as well. And I wonder who gave the green light for that. Heyman, to use the vernacular, went off on one during this. Way too little, way too late. But it's going to stand on its own, I think, as, spoiler alert, we're not going to get many more opportunities for Paul Heyman to say this anytime soon. Listen to our next volume for more on that. But he got it all out there while he could. So, Lacey, I'll come to you first on this one, as you specifically requested we discuss it. Um, This must have hit home a bit for you in one way or the other. Yeah, this basically is Heyman... We we know that he, he loves to shoot because of, you know, back in the ECW days. But everything he said is the fucking truth. Um, it's quite novel for someone to turn the spotlight on Vince and sort of actually tell him absolutely everything that he has ever done wrong. How he fucked wrestling and put it into a into a light that's like, yeah, you are a cunt. And yeah, you may you may have won because obviously he, he was always going to win because he, he was never going to lose, was he? Because Vince has such a fucking ego. But to have someone be able to point out everything that he's ever done and do it with that level of spite and truth and venom it was perfect and I hate to say it but you could say that statement take that promo and probably play it forever and a day and it will still ring true because Vince the one thing that will always be is he will always put his ego ahead of everything else instead of the fans instead of good wrestling, good shows. If he's making money and doing what he wants, he's gonna do it. And yeah, it's it's nice to actually have someone show that spotlight in a way that everyone else now can see it, whether people believe it, um and just think it's a story for a wrestling show. But there was so much truth in that, that that's what makes this arguably one of the best promos slash segments of all time, let alone just this year. That's so cool. Chris White, stand up for your pop. Look, this is a, I know you said it was a speech rather than a promo, but I mean, if we're grading it against other promos, this is an all time, it's a promo for the ages. And like, I mean, Breaking news, Paul Heyman with a microphone is awesome. Like, I, I mean, none of our listeners, that that won't be news to any of them. Um, and this promo, I mean, probably the, the best thing I can say about it is that it was single-handedly enough to almost make me excited for Survivor Series, which, like, is some doing. Um, yeah, the passion, the delivery, 
some of the lines, just mind blowing stuff. It's all stellar, and it does like I know you'll you'll uh, get into this uh, on the second edition of this month's show, but I mean, imagine taking this guy off your TV. <laughs> like, what what are they doing? Um, yeah, there's not much more I can say about this really. So, uh, um, I'll, I'll pass it back to you. But yeah, this was exceptional. It was like the one of the TV highlights of the year, uh, let alone this month, and certainly let alone um, the the invasion. And just look or listen to what he's been replaced with again, huh? Exactly, Eric. Your thoughts on this live lament that Paul Heyman treated us all to? Because he knew the game was up. Right. Great promo. Uh, no question that there is a Mount Rushmore of non-wrestlers who can cut promos right now, and Paul Heyman is on it. And then I think you can debate who's two through four uh, below him going right now. Um, I have two like divergent thoughts on this. One of them is completely ridiculous, and then one is actually kind of how I feel about this. So maybe we'll do the ridiculous first. I mean, don't you just see kind of somewhere there's a possibility where Paul's walking back through the curtain or maybe Vince is, I can't remember who went back first. And they get together and you see Vince and you see Paul. This is Vince. Paul, great promo, man. Working a little stiff there, but I think you nailed it. Good job, pal. Anyway, uh, King's coming in. So, uh, been nice working with you. Um, so I can see part of Vince just loving this, right? Because probably to him, he's convinced himself that Paul is cutting a work shoot on the Vince McMahon character and or Mr. McMahon, not Vince McMahon, the, you know, beloved owner of a mom and pop organization that toppled AOL Time Warner's, you know, number one uh, holding, as he would probably praise it. So more realistically, though, just to introduce a little bit of devil's advocacy here. Certainly, Paul Heyman is a much better promo than this person I'm going to bring up. As uh, Every facet of his mind when it comes to wrestling uh, and creativity is, is, is far superior, inexplicably superior. But isn't this the same kind of stuff that we pretty well eviscerated Russo for doing? These, like, work shoot, how much of the audience is this actually landing with? Who is this for? Um, is he cutting a promo to pop himself and his boys and the 10%, maybe a little bit more now, but, you know, up to 20% of the audience who might actually understand what's going on here. And then the rest of the folks, so they think this is just a weird kind of like Mr. McMahon, Paul, I don't know. great promo, wonderful delivery. Everything he said was true. Who is it for? That's the only devil's advocate uh, position that I can take with this. But I think as far as where we're affiliated, where we're situated with this stuff, this was meant for us. And he nailed it. I just I just wonder still if we're going to hold Russo and some of these other work shoot folks to one standard. I don't know that we can hold Paul just because he's better at doing it to another one. No, I think that's fair. Uh, this promo, I keep calling it a promo incorrectly to do it a grave injustice. This was for Paul Heyman. And if anybody else likes it, it's a bonus. And we all did. So there we are. But he's been wanting to do this for years and years and years. But let's look at the timing here. This isn't quite the promo he cut shortly before the Invasion pay-per-view. That was another extremely strong one. 
even by his standards, but it didn't quite get underneath the skin. <laughs> yes, I know that takes on a whole new meaning with what happens the day after the pay-per-view, but didn't quite get underneath the skin of Vince McMahon like this one did. And that is why he was able to do it. Almost as an afterthought, every syllable he came out with, I think very, very few people would disagree, even if you are a total fed head. And I know they're out there. No, This was hitting right in the heart and the soul, and maybe elsewhere as well. But Vince McMahon, let's not look past this point as much as we might want to, afforded him this opportunity because there was going to be no comeback from it. And when you look at the obvious results of the Survivor Series pay-per-view, that was really Vince McMahon's rebuttal and all it needed to be. He talked about, the Alliance are going to choke. That wasn't his response to this at all. That was just a get-out-of-the-segment. His response to it was what he had already planned four months earlier and how this whole storyline was going to end. So as great as this was from Heyman, and he finally got it off his chest, again, knowing he's not going to have many more opportunities to do so in front of such a wide audience... No. <laughs> I'm sure Tommy Dream has heard this one a few times, but Vince McMahon let him do it. It's all going back to the discussion we had on here four years ago. Bob Bamba brought up the fact where Vince McMahon wanted Bret Hart to punch him. I'm not sure I necessarily agreed with that, but I can see the argument, and I think it's the same here. And Vince let him go deep and talk about his affairs and what have you. Because let's face it, I don't think he's quite as shamefaced about those as he should be anyway. But Heyman was allowed to let rip because the response, we only had to wait three days for it and we all knew what it was going to be. So Heyman can say what he likes. As true as it undoubtedly was, I really don't want to say this because I'm not on that side of the fence, but who's laughing now? Biggest, the biggest thing that concerns me about where we are now is how many creative people in wrestling are without a place to work. Oh, yeah. It's a major worry. Major worry. I'm blanking on names who we do have. And how, you know, the list of people out of who are not in this position is far greater than the ones who are. And especially I mean, as I... far as the Fed is concerned, where the stories are going the days and weeks after this, it's, it's a major concern. And even the folks that are with the Fed, you know, who's driving the creative and who's being stifled. It's just, mm, again, for later on in the show, but I think this is very symbolic, this promo, just in its, in its general quality. And then he comes out and he gets fired by Jerry Lawler, spoiler alert, or he gets fired and then Jerry Lawler replaces him. So we basically just, reverted back to where we were pre-invasion and it's just concerning but again i'm getting ahead of myself this is the paul Heyman version of being resigned to your fate isn't it but he doesn't go for the sackcloth and ashes he just goes right for the jugular but even with one that size he still missed so let's get to the survivor series 2001 pay-per-view winner take all I just can't do it. Um, I'm actually going to read the results here because much like we did for WrestleMania, we've split up the play-by-plays for the matches and I've got it right in front of me, so why not? Christian defeated Al Snow in a singles match for the European Championship in a match set up on heat shortly before the pay-per-view. Winner take all. William Regal defeated Tajiri. Edge defeated Test to unify the US and Intercontinental Championships. The Dudley Boys defeated the Hardy Boys in a steel cage match in another unification match for the Tag Team Championships. Getting the picture yet? In an immunity battle royal, Test won by last eliminating Billy Gunn. More on that later. Can't wait. 
In a six-pack challenge for the vacant WWF Women's Championship, Trish Stratus came out on top against Ivory, Jazz, making her debut, Jacqueline, Lita, and Mighty Molly. And in the 5-on-5 Survivor Series elimination match between Team WWF, The Rock, Chris Jericho, The Undertaker, Kane, and Big Show, and Team Alliance, <laughs> Steve Austin, Kurt Angle, Rob Van Dam, Booker T, Shane McMahon, <laughs> uh, the Team WWF won. And so there we go. Shock fucking horror. Lacey, your thoughts on this as a pay-per-view first before we really start to get into it. So, as one of the big four shows of the year, you would expect it to be entertaining. You'd expect it to be captivating. You'd expect it to not make you want to rifle through the cupboards looking for snacks constantly because you're bored shitless and only watching it because you've stayed up till silly o'clock in the morning because you don't have school the next morning. I could have had a good night's sleep. Well, at least you weren't looking through the cupboards snacking for rifles, Lacey. Well, I bet you probably thought about it towards the end of the show. <laughs> what snacks did you choose out of interest? Uh, well, it started with some Pringles. Good lad. Then went to the Doritos. Uh, the Pringles with the salt and vinegar. Because they've oh. got to be, you know, they've got to eat them in a hand, have some pain. It's better be uh, tangy cheese Doritos now to make up for No, that. flaming hot. It's really, the, oh, okay, salt, yeah. really oh. the most metal, metal, salt and vinegar is really the most metal chips, which is really on brand for at least. <laughs> Then, uh, you know, That's some uh, pot Doritos, and then uh, then went to the pork pies. Oh, here we and go. Then, and then it was toast with peanut butter, because that's where I was during the main event. Because it was 3 a.m. on Monday morning. I've been there. I've been there. And I could quite easily fuck off into the kitchen for five minutes and not miss anything. <sighs> Chris White, you don't have to share your culinary choices during this pay-per-view, unless you wish to, but what did you think of it before your eyes? Uh, I think me and the show get off on a bad foot, and I mean no no disrespect or offence to these women, but when I saw the poster for this show, billed as one of the biggest shows of the year, a huge show in, in the history of not just WWF, but three companies, a show that, in in many ways, is the culmination of the Monday Night Wars and would go on to feature the end of WCW. The poster just has Tory Wilson and Lita on it. <laughs> and I was like, "What? what's going on? Like, And I, I think that told me all I needed to know about how the show was going to go. And if I have to judge this by what this was sold to me as, then this is... It's, it's bad. It's really bad. But I, I think if you just ordered this, like, almost context-free, it's like, there's not, like, a lot of bad wrestling on the show. I actually enjoyed a lot of the wrestling on the show. Um, the the storylines are a mess and the booking's a mess, but, like, I, I, you can't really blame anyone who's on the show, really. Um, it's kind of the, the hand they've been dealt, and... I think, generally speaking, even like the, the the lower matches that have absolutely no like draw to them whatsoever, they delivered. They probably delivered more than I expected them to. But this show was was like meant to. Be, I'm I'm expecting like maybe not as good, but in in theory, this should be 
reaching WrestleMania levels of of importance, of significance, and and of of moments. But this was just like a passable, low level pay per view. Stay with us. Eric, I'll throw it back to you again shortly for you to kick off this wonderful pay-per-view we're all looking forward to getting into so, so much. But your opening thoughts, if you would, good sir. This was a a pretty dreadful show. I mean, uh, we've covered it in the context of a three-month invasion storyline, four-month invasion storyline. And that's one thing. But in the context of what's been a really a seven-year battle and three, you know, the last three years being pretty tumultuous. This is just an offensive, um, this is just an offensive way to bring that all to a head. I don't think there's anything on here that was really satisfying to anybody who's been paying attention to any of this. I guess you could say if you've never seen a wrestling show before or you're very unfamiliar with the product and you're just dropped into this, there's some fine work and some interesting looking people and some interesting things that happen, but None of it comes together to make any sort of sense or in any sort of satisfactory way. I may be overspeaking it here because I don't have the results right in front of me, but I don't know that there was a single result on this card that I was satisfied with. And um, just a really, really unfortunate way to cap off what was already a lackluster invasion storyline. Uh, because you know, three or four years ago, if you were to say this is going to, there's going to be a Survivor Series in 2001, and it's going to be WWF versus WCW. For you know, for for all the marbles, you could you could write this card a million times and never come up with anything that looks as close to this. For my thoughts on this pay per view, I'm going to turn to the words of the late great George Harrison, who left us a day before we recorded this show. Don't come the match that this whole thing has been building to, Christian, the European champion versus Al Snow in a match that was uh, made 10 minutes before the show started on heat. Um, but we do start the show with Christian's glorious pyro, and I do mean it is stupendous. Um, and JR reminds us that this match was just made on heat before the show. Um, Christian greets his fans in South Carolina, um, and of course we're in North Carolina, so getting a little local uh, cheat pop there. And then, unfortunately, we get tough enough Al Snow, not head Al Snow. Uh, Heyman says Al's a coach because those who can't do, coach. And the bell sounds as Al rides Christian. We get a series of pin attempts early for Al. Christian takes over with rights in the corner. Al baseball slides between Christian's legs to counter a whip, and he gets a back suplex. Christian then puts Al in the corner head first and stomps with boots. We have we want head chance. A Russian leg sweep gets Christian a two, and he walks in a sleeper. Al fires out, and they trade punches. Christian hits a suplex for a one and follows that with chokes and punches to a prone Al. Al fires back with punches and uppercuts, and Christian gains the advantage. At this point, I've noted that this is kind of a sloppy match. It probably sounds better as I'm reading it than it came off on screen, but maybe the gentlemen disagree. Al reverses another whip with a baseball slide, hits jabs, and hits headbutts to Christian's shoulder. I'm wondering who that's doing the most damage to. Al nails a crescent kick to counter an unprettier attempt, and he hits a sit-out powerbomb for a two. Uh, Christian nails a reverse DDT variant that JR mistakenly calls the unprettier and talks shit, and that allows Al to get a roll-up for a two. Al hits a crossbody, but Christian rolls through barely and gets a two. We're talking Wendy Richter barely roll through WrestleMania 1 here. Al hits the snow but but they're close to the ropes, and Christian gets a foot on the rope at two. 
Christian recovers and in short order nails Al with the unprettier 4-3, cleans the sheet in the middle of the ring. Uh, uh, Christian uh, retains the European Championship over Al Snow, 9 minutes and 30 seconds. Uh, we'll go to Mr. White first uh, for his thoughts on this opening contest. On any other show, I thought this was a perfectly fine opening card match. That again, it's going to be a theme, just so below par and so average um, for a show of this supposed magnitude. Like, we could literally be hours away from the end of the WWF and we've just kicking it off with a match from Heat. I'd, I'd say, like, I was glad Christian won, but like, it's the European title. How could I possibly give a shit? Um, the only real highlight was Christian backing Al into the corner and shouting, come on, come on, Al, are you tough enough? That was, like, one of my highlights of the match. The, the work was fine. <sighs> what else is there to say? I mean, if I'm just reviewing a wrestling match, it's fine. If I'm reviewing the opening match on a show that's meant to be this show, bad. Bad. Lacey. This does the cardinal sin of being fucking boring. Um, no build, no reason, no purpose. And if it wasn't for the fact it was in the first 10 minutes of the show, it would have been time to go and get some food. Um, but, you know, being a well-prepared person, I'd already brought the snacks in with me to start the show. There, it was just pointless. You know, it would have been a perfectly serviceable main event on Heat. If you wanted it there for the crowd, you could have done it as the Heat main event, because obviously, as we know, pay-per-view weeks, Heat's done pre-the-pay-per-view at that venue. When you look back at what we had as the opener for WrestleMania, which, you know, this is that sort of level of prestige for the, you know, an event where the Fed could die. We had Jericho and Regal for the Intercontinental title. We get Christian versus Al Snow, who's been seen all of about twice because he turned up in Maven after the end of Tough Enough to promote the fact that Tough Enough was a thing. It's just a waste of ten minutes. Rory, anything different? Well, first off, Eric, you're testing me now because I have to level up and squeeze in a WrestleMania 1 reference myself during my two penneth worth here, so wish me luck. This match was okay. I really thought it was. I agree that it had no business being here, and Al Snow looked a little bit on the ropey side, but, you know, do as I say, not as I do, and all of that sort of thing, but this was a good outing. He was on the... Would you say he was on the loose ropey side, like the ropes at WrestleMania 1? <laughs> That's not where I was. But you're not allowed to go 2-0 up, Eric. Come on. Let, let, let me, let me tie, right, tie the game first. Come on. <laughs> I'm laying out. <laughs> what I was going to say is that Christian managed to hold it together very well, very tightly, if you will. And I should just say the heat match that we did get, Lacey, and I'm just where to even go with this one, just incredible Lance Storm and Raven two of those names in particular, teaming up to defeat Albert, Scotty Too Hotty, and Spike Dudley. I would have fucking rather had that. I'm sure you would have. And that would have made much more fucking sense. Yep. 
And remember Spike Dudley, who was rubbing shoulders, well, on a box, with Austin just a few months ago? Remember that? Because they clearly don't. But the match was fine, it really was. And I'm happy to see that Christian is at least being noticed backstage. I talked in our Rebellion show that I fear him settling into mere good handness, which is not the place you want to be in a sports entertainment company. But his promo was solid too. I think he's got the chops to be relatively secure in his employment. He would probably want more than that, but he's not the other guy. We'll talk about him a bit later. But I thought it was fine despite Al alling it up. And Eric Christian got his arm raised in Victor. Yeah, it was definitely a joking aside. Definitely the right outcome. Uh, I don't think that that was in question at any point, really. Uh, Part of me wondered if this was just Al's, like, bonus payment for doing the tough enough thing. Because that would, like, if I was Al Snow, that would have been a miserable process to go through. Just no no questions about it. yeah, this match was fine, but it didn't belong in the show. It didn't belong in a show of this magnitude. It would have been perfect on Raw. It would have been perfect on, as a main event for Heat leading up to this. I agree with Lacey that I would have rather seen that, that six-man because at least then, you know, in the same amount of time, 10 minutes, you probably have a bit of a spot fest. You get guys like Spike who have shown himself worthy of being on a card of this magnitude, whereas Al Snow, like, he's just not that guy. And we got to stop trying to make Al Snow happen. I mean, it's just not going to happen. And he's a great trainer. He was, I mean, we listened, we did the Tough Enough volume, and, and, you know, I think he came off really well to the non-wrestling crowd. It's a great spot for him. He should do that. He doesn't belong on shows because he's boring, and he's basic, and he was great in Smoky Mountain for six months, and that's about as good as he's ever been. Uh, otherwise, yeah, I agree. Christian here, he's great. And if only we could just switch out the European title for the television title, we have a whole crop of guys like Christian, Al Snow, even Lance Storm. Uh, just incredible, like good workers who could be in that TV title division and really just have 10-minute bangers uh, a couple times a week and on the pay-per-view. But here, not so much, probably not the match I would have put to start the most important show in the history of my company. In the back, Austin and Deborah arrived to an anxious uh, crowd, including Stephanie Shane, RVD, Booker T, and Angle, their alliance team. Steph asks if Austin is going to turn. Austin says, hell no, he ain't joining the WWF. Austin says he's the leader and tells everyone to stop being paranoid. In another area in the back, Vince tells Linda he can't worry about Shane and Stephanie when business is at stake. That's a shoot. Vince says Linda should be prepared for shit to happen. His words. Cole asks if Vince has comments about the future of the WWF being in danger. Vince is confident the WWF will win because he's fighting six on four. Regal then confronts him and says he doesn't believe Vince has a mole. Regal says he's going to destroy that toe rag to Jerry and then watch the Alliance destroy the WWF. Paul E. reminds us that, in his words, the last WWF pay-per-view is sponsored by Xbox. And I'll sing the show to Mr. Lacey for the next match. So our next contest is my boy Regal versus my other boy Tajiri in a with beating up the houseboy match. Tajiri starts with kicks. Regal with a with some forearms and a fireman's roll. More forearms and hits the knee trembler. Tajiri, low drop kick and stiff kicks. Puts on the tarantula and hits a backspring elbow that gets a two. Tajiri gets head kicks but is caught into the ropes. Regal then pulls on his legs. Tajiri puts on a headlock. 
Regal with a double arm powerbomb for the win. Post-match, another powerbomb, then Tori comes in and gets one of her own. The review is that short because the match really, nothing really happened. Um, Both of them were very much off. Um, Just didn't seem to to have that sort of normal chemistry that you'd expect between these two. Um, Rory, we'll go to you first. What are you thinking? Well, for me, the fact that this match was so short, I think, helped it a bit. Because we talked on the Rebellion show that these got six golden minutes to work in, and they barely had half that here. And that was definitely the better match. But I think this one had a point to make, and it did, that Regal's somebody you do not want to fuck with, in as stereotypical a British accent as I can apportion, being, some might say, stereotypically British myself. But that's what it was. You know, He got in, he sorted Tajiri out a bit, somehow managed to get a bloody nose into the bargain, gave Tory Wilson what for, and then sodded off, all in the space of five minutes. And knowing where Regal is headed, and I choose those words very advisedly the next day, he very much needed this. Now, would I like to see more from these two? Of course I would. But I think this was very effective. Not a lot on this show was, so we've got to take it while we can. A waste of their talents on the whole, it might well have been, but it did what it wanted to, and that was rare tonight. Why? This was just too short, bizarrely short, to, to really go anywhere. And considering like we had like a, a a bit of a rivalry and a bit of build to this one, it just felt weird. Like the post match stuff went on much longer than the match itself. Um, the time hurt. It wasn't as good as the Rebellion match, as, as Rory said. Um, and aside from Regal's nose exploding early on, I'm, I'm not sure I'll remember too much about this match in, in a week. Eric? Yeah, I, I really dislike this. Uh, I mean, I won't, I won't take longer than the match itself uh, to review it, but Instead of putting these two exceptionally capable, hard-hitting workers with glimmers of chemistry with any real opportunity they've been given in the ring, we get three minutes of this and two test matches. And if that doesn't tell you that Vince McMahon won this fucking war, I don't know what does. Um, Certainly Regal is earmarked for something bigger. It better be really fucking big because this is a burial of Tajiri. I mean, they've built this guy as an assassin. I got a hired assassin. I mean, he's clearly like a comedy sidekick outside of the ring. Sure. But in the ring, this guy kicks people in the head. He breaks the rules. He blinds people. And here, Billy Regal comes in, squashes him in three minutes, squashes his girlfriend, steals his car, signs, you know, signs over his mortgage to him and then replaces all of his headshots and all of Tajiri's family photos by the end of it. Like, this is just a burial. And so if I'm watching this show for the first time or I'm coming around to it for a while and I see this, Tajiri has no value to me whatsoever, and I think that's a big mistake. So, sure, push Regal. He can win. He can win clean, convincingly, or whatever. But give Tajiri some shine. I mean, this this is awful. This just – this was more of a – concern to me as to where the show was headed than the opening match. 
So, Eric, sort of pushing on on that. As I said, I think there was just something that they they were off. I don't know whether it was a case of Tajiri was off or Regal was off, but they just didn't click. During that, could have been something in it, or do you think that his Lord Lord and Highness Mister McMahon just didn't want them to let Tajiri have any in this? Yeah, sure. They had a little. I mean, this was not this was not a good three minute match. I mean, as far as those can be. I mean, they they never they never got out of the driveway here, let alone out of first gear. Um, but I think that's a product of okay, yeah. I mean, Regal is, has a weird style, and Tajiri has a weird style, and it probably takes these guys, you know, five or ten minutes to to get a feel for it. That's how this is supposed to work. These aren't supposed to be three minute matches. Like that's the point. Neither. Regal himself has said that he's not a guy who wrestles matches like this. He said it many times over the years. And so to put him in a spot like this, I think you're basically setting them up to look like shit and then it's over. And then, so they have this bad match and then Regal just beats him and then beats up his girlfriend and beats him again. Like, I think this is just bad booking all around. Give these guys 15 minutes or, or resolve this some other way than a match or to Jerry just comes out of it looking like nothing. Yeah. So, after that, we see Oil uh, Tess in the back getting oiled up and starts chatting up Stacy. And Edge has a promo telling us that he will keep his job by winning the next match. And that next match is the unification uh, between United States champion Edge and the WWF Intercontinental champion Test. Uh, Edge had beaten Kurt Angle for the US title six days prior on Raw, and Test, uh, having had won the uh, IC belt from Edge uh, on Raw two weeks ago. I don't know why I'm saying any of this, because the belts change so often these days. It's literally impossible to keep track from one show to another. If you miss, like, one TV, you, like there could be, like, three new champions with no context or no explanation, and then they'll all flip back by the next episode. So there you go. Uh, so they uh, lock up to open before Test uh, quickly overpowers Edge. We get another lock up, but this time Edge gets the best of it. Test shoves Edge, but Test comes back and tees off before hitting a crossbody. We get a third lock up. Test takes a cheap shot at Edge and follows up with a clothesline. Test chokes Edge and drops him onto the barricade outside. Uh, Edge fires back with a drop kick and a hip toss. He hits a baseball slide to the outside before. Uh, nailing a swinging neckbreaker back in the ring. Tess takes control of a flatjack. He hits a corner clothesline before he goes to the chin lock. Edge, Edge eventually fights out of it with knees. He gets a missile drop kick for two before Tess cuts him off with a tilt-a-whirl slam. Tess props Edge up on the top turnbuckle. He gets kicked off, but uh, as Tess comes off the top, he catches him with a drop kick in one of the better spots of the match. Both men trade strikes until Edge knocks Tess down with a clothesline and hits a spinning heel kick. We get a uh, face buster by Edge for a two count. Tess comes back and looks for a pump handle, but Edge slips out of it for an Edge-O-Matic for another near fall. Tess comes back, hits a spear, which gets two. He looks to follow with a big boot, but Edge dodges, misses with a spear attempt of his own. He counters a powerbomb attempt by Tess with a Haran Kamrana, then hits a spear, but this time... It's Tess' turn to kick out at two. 
Edge attempts the execution, but Tess counters. He looks for a full Nelson, but Edge rolls through into a victory roll for the win. Edge is our unified champion. Rory, what did you make of this match? Uh, this was a boring match, but because of that, it was a rather interesting one. Because I think in making this match so dull, they probably did themselves a favour, really. Because Edge, as I've said many times since he probably went solo, he's not ready to hold matches together yet. And Test will never be ready, but it's Test's job to do so, supposedly. So we have ourselves a bit of an impasse, do we not? Well, I think they both realised this, and all credit to them, and they kept it very, very simple. There were a couple of rather long rest holds in there, but they probably needed those, and they didn't try to overexert themselves. So from an entertainment perspective, there probably wasn't a whole lot going on here. But I did respect the fact that they seemed to understand that and just went with what they had. Of course, there's another very, very fair question you can rebut there and say, well, why are they being given this position anyway if they can't handle it yet? And I don't have much of an answer for you. No, I don't write the checks. I'll just imagine that. But I think they worked well within themselves here. I did like the inventiveness at the finish because you know that Vince is not going to have Test taking a full finisher at this point. Heaven forfend. But they made the most of what they had. It didn't make for the most invigorating viewing experience, but I am going to give them some props for gutting their way through it, but all the questions I had about Edge as a singles competitor still very much exist, I'm afraid, and I'm not getting many answers yet. Lacey? This tells you all about this match. This was the point where I'd finished the Pringles and had gone in for the Doritos and looking for other snacks because it didn't hold my attention. Um, It's just... It was just dull. Edge's matches are just meh. I, I get why Test is getting a push is because he's Vince's wet dream. But he's boring and dull. And yeah. Yeah, the, the faint praise, the, the praise that he got last month for actually having a, a fairly passable big man match when expecting it to be shit. This one just was shit. Bring us home, Eric. Yeah, this is a boring match. There wasn't anything necessarily wrong with it. Um, I don't think Test is very good. I think we can probably write the book on that. I mean, how many... I think you can kind of... If you know the clocks are going to change, you know a Test push is about to come and vice versa. So if you see a Test push starting, you know you're going to lose an hour of sleep or get another one coming up pretty soon. (laughs) And... um, I just think that we're trying, and this will come up again later, because obviously Tess didn't win here, and Tess is not the unified intercontinental U.S. So isn't that just making the world champion? Anyway, um, I just think that Tess just never really has shown that he's capable of performing in a big spot, and he's not charismatic enough to overcome his in-ring deficiencies. He's basically Sid without the unpredictability and natural charisma, which is not a great place to be. So here we go again. And I've definitely cooled on edge in that he's just so bland and boring. And at least when he was with Christian and they were doing their thing, there was some stuff to play off of, but he needs a little something edge does. And I don't know what that is. And I don't know if he's got it. I don't know if it has to be putting him back in a, in a group or, or, you know, they don't really, 
do a lot of managers these days, but they do from time to time. Um, I don't really see any anybody else on the roster that would would satisfy this. But the point is, he needs he needs something to give him a little no pun intended edge because he is becoming quite boring quite quickly. And as for Test, we'll get back to him later. Yeah, just quickly to pop in, Edge's promo before this match was a major red flag, pun intended, where he was dropping the a boot bomb, and that's all he had. It's not happening, is it? It's not happening. I I don't know if I was in a particularly good mood when I watched this show. I thought it this match took forever to get going, but once I kind of got past the the early plodding stages, I thought the final stretch was really quite entertaining. Um, and I thought that was like mostly a credit to Edge because, as we know, Test is what Test is. Um, the first half was basically just Edge laying around selling, but I thought the final like three or four minutes was pretty good and quite a well put together match from that point. But again, it's 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 on this show, isn't it? That's 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 the problem for me. That's the biggest problem. I definitely agree with you all on sort of your reservations about Edge at this stage. He's got a lot left to prove. Um, and the jury's basically out on whether he can push past where he is now. Um, and I mean, for a guy that was so entertaining as part of that tag team um, and had many a good backstage segment, many a good promo that was, I mean, not serious main event level stuff, but, at the very least, entertaining. Um, that seems to have all dissipated, um, which is a problem for him at this stage in the game. Um, but yeah, I, I I thought this was kind of fine, I guess. But yeah, I mean, we're three matches into what is one of the biggest shows, like that we've been sold as one of the biggest shows, and an hour and a half removed from the potential end of the WWF or, or two other companies. And uh, it's just all very low stakes and absolutely none of it. I mean, I know we, in the last match, unified two belts together, but for all the value they hold at the moment, it doesn't really matter. And we could be watching rebellion again. Like that's, that's how this felt at this stage. Backstage, we had uh, Stephanie McMahon venting to Kurt Angle about how worried she is that if the Alliance lost, she would have to become a regular person. She'd have to get her own groceries, clean her own toilet. But Angle assured her that he wasn't going to let that happen. Across the way, Lita's asking Jeff if he knows any- if there's anything up with Matt, as he's been acting strange. Jeff just says that it's a very stressful situation for them all and all their jobs are at stake. Uh, Matt comes out of the dressing room and gives them the pep talk about winning their upcoming unification match against the Dudleys and later winning the women's title uh, so that nobody could steal their jobs and their wrestling dreams. Matt and Jed, Jeff head off as their match is next, but after they are gone, uh, Lita bumps into Trish walking out of the dressing room that Matt just came from. Trish wishes Lita good luck for the match tonight, but Lita is not too pleased. Uh, with that out of the way, we move to that unification match uh, for the WCW and WWF tag team titles with the Hardys taking on the Dudleys in a steel cage match. No particular reason for this to be a cage match. Stipulation had been decided by Mick Foley, uh, probably to try and keep some aspect of the match fresh, as obviously we've seen these two teams go up against each other a lot of times by this point. 
big pet peeve of mine as they start this off like a uh, regular tag match with sort of one member of each team staying in the corner. I don't know why you would bother doing that in a cage match when it literally cannot be disqualified. We've specifically been told that you can win by pinfall submission or having both members of the team climb out of the cage. So Matt and Bubba kick us off. Bubba charges in, eats right hands from Matt. Jeff tags in, hits an elbow before... uh, before he's cut off with a side slam from Bubba for an early two count. Devon's in and he tees off on Jeff, but Jeff hits a drop kick and tags his brother back in. Uh, Devon gets a reverse elbow and a tag to Bubba, who clubs Matt across the back. Bubba tags Devon. Devon tries to ram Matt into the cage, but Matt blocks it. They, the Dudleys beat down on Matt until uh, Matt counters the power slam with a neck breaker. We get the build to a hot tag, again, in a cage match, which allows... Uh, Jeff in, and he hits the uh, poetry in motion on both men. Uh, the Hardys both look to escape the cage. Devon tries to stop Matt, but gets a Russian leg sweep off the side of the cage and brings both men down. Uh, Bubba then Bubba bombs Jeff off the top turnbuckle. Bubba tries to climb out, but Matt tosses him back into the ring and gets two. The Dudleys flapjack Matt into the side of the cage. They look to do the same to Jeff, but he's able to hang on to the cage and starts to climb. Bubba stops him, puts him in an electric chair, and the Dudleys hit the doomsday device. Uh, the Dudleys try a double dive from the top rope uh, onto Jeff, which he dodges, uh, allowing the Hardys to make a comeback. Uh, they succeed where the Dudleys uh, just failed um, with their double team move and hit a leg drop splash combination on Bubba for a near fall as Devon breaks up the pin. Matt tries to escape, but he gets trapped in the tree of woe from the top of the cage. Bubba and Devon then hit the what's up on Jeff. Bubba rams Matt's head into the cage and causes him, fall, causing him to fall back into the ring. Bubba instructs Stacy to get the table. She uh, then seduces Nick Patrick so he, she can pick his pocket and get the key to the cage door, opens the cage and feeds the table into the ring. Matt and Jeff avoid a 3D through the table and Matt begins to escape in the cage. He manages to escape the clutches of Bubba, gets over the top and drops to the floor. This leaves Jeff's all alone with the two Dudleys and the table. Jeff climbs his way to the top towards escaping the cage. While this is happening, Devon slowly picks himself off the canvas and puts himself on the table that's set up in the ring. Jeff is moments from victory, but he looks down and sees Devon on the table, and he cannot help himself. He dives for a swanton bomb on Devon, but Devon moves out of the way. Jeff crashes through the table, and Bubba crawls over, pins Jeff, and steals the win. The Dudley Boys unified the WWF and WCW tag team titles. Lacey, what do you think of this one? I enjoyed this because it was something different for these four uh, to put them in the cage. I concur with you like the beginning bit with them actually doing tag team rules was a bit weird and it wasn't just like a Texas tornado all against all as it really should be a cage match. Um, the Jeff spot is fucking amazing, but makes no fucking sense in a you are fighting for your job context. Um, yeah, if this would have just been on any normal pay per view for the titles, then yeah, go fucking balls deep, go get your big fucking glory moment. You know, the highlight reel that we know that Jeff loves to, to do. But you're in a match that, quote unquote, is to save your job 
And if you do not win by the end of the night, you could be jobless. Just doesn't make sense. And well, it, it just—it's just one of those. It, it makes sense if 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 the storyline is that Jeff is an idiot, then then it makes sense. True. If if Jeff is a complete moron, then yeah, it does make sense. Um, obviously, we always know that I love my boys, the Dudleys. Um, they were as awesome as always. Um, and obviously makes sense that they win the belts because of what happens later because you're not going to bin the Dudleys off. But, yeah, it, it was it was so good and it, as I said, would have been perfect even with that finish on any other show. But the, the finish sort of ruins it a little bit because why the fuck would you do it? Eric. I, I gotta say, I didn't come to this today intending to sound like Bruno San Martino on the Pro Wrestling Spotlight talking about Hulk Hogan, but like, <laughs> here we are. Um, when did when did we decide to do a tag team cage match on every show or almost every show? Like, it's such a bad construct for tag team wrestling. It. It doesn't allow any of the psychology of tag team wrestling to, to, to develop. It's just kind of a chaotic brawl, which is fine if you like that, for however long the match is supposed to go. And then a finish that either makes one team look absolutely weak, like we saw back at, I think, SummerSlam with the Chronic and Undertaker and Kane situation. No, that wasn't Chronic. I'm sorry. That was DDP and Canyon. Uh, but same idea. It either has to be kind of a glorified squash match at the end, or it has to have some convoluted, like, dumb shit finish like we get in this match. So I just don't like these styles of matches, and I really wish, like, okay, I know we've seen the Dudleys and the Hardys go uh, a bunch of times. And you factor an edge and Christian into that, and these guys have been basically battling nonstop for two or three years, but still one more time. Like, just have a good, high-quality tag match. I mean, it's it's they're going to have – tables and everything else anyway because that's the Dudley's gimmick and the Hardys are high flyers so like that stuff's going to be a natural part of a normal Dudley's and Hardys match as it is just let them do that and now you've got Stacy in the mix and she's great for what she is and I think it adds a, a interesting dynamic to the Dudley's and it allows just so many more possibilities than just putting these guys in a cage and then having to do a finish that makes probably the most individually popular person in this match looked like an absolute idiot. And I am also, maybe, maybe I'm a little bit late to this party, but there we're going to get a Hardy's breakup and neither of these guys are ready for that. And it's, I think the seeds have been sown uh, and are continuing to, to manifest there. And I'm just really worried that we're, we're going to lose this, we're going to lose a great team because that's what the WWF does. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe in six months they're the tag team champions on top of the world. But you don't do a finish like this unless you either want to make Jeff look like a complete idiot for no reason or it's going to sow some seeds of dissent between he and Matt because Matt's going to be like, what the fuck were you doing? And then Jeff's going to say, well, you you left. I mean, you, you got out of there before I was ready. So, I mean, maybe that's the silver lining here to explain why this match happened like it happened. But, gosh, I'm just sick of 
I'm just sick of these types of matches. And I just wish these guys could have been given a lot more room to shine than, than this construct. So I don't know. Maybe we'll find some some solace down the line. Uh, but this match didn't do it for me. I guess as far as tag team cage matches go, this is probably the best one. But it's just it's a it's a it, it doesn't work at, for tag team wrestling in my opinion. And Rory, well they're facing each other at Vengeance, Eric. So there you are, and that fills me with dread. I must say. Much like when I saw that this match was happening again, and I say the word again often enough on this podcast as it is, but when we got the Dudleys facing the Hardys, you know, my copy of Roger's Thesaurus, not even that can really save me. But this was very solid for what it was, so it bloody should be, given their familiarity, but they didn't put a foot wrong on this one. They kept it going for the 15 minutes. I thought they worked the rather dodgy stipulation fairly well. I thought Stacey Keebler's interference came at the right time. And Nick Patrick gets all the good jobs, doesn't he? Just think about that. And it tobied along nicely for 14 of its 15 minutes, I think. For somebody who is beyond jaded with this combination, they did enough to keep me there without reaching for the salt and vinegar Pringles. But nothing was ever going to be that bad. Sorry, Lacey. But the ending was far too clever by half. I appreciated what they were going for. And I further appreciate on the TV after this, that they have Matt Hardy say, well, why didn't you just win the match? Because so often in the WWF, we find ourselves ask, asking everybody that question, but answer came there none because this is entertainment, pal. But they actually leaned into that part of the story, and I'm very grateful for that, that this wasn't the time to do it. As Lacey has so rightly said, your job's on the line here, and Jeff Hardy might be a daredevil, but he's not a complete nincompoop. I trust him to know that. If you're being employed by a pro wrestling company, you've got to have a little bit of savvy about you. I'll just leave that one lingering. But let's assume that he does or should have, right? And for him to do that, you can't explain it away. Jeff Hardy's character traits are not sufficient enough an explanation, no matter how much they want to try to make it so. And we don't say this about the Fed very often, but here they over and outthought themselves and just made themselves look stupid they didn't even need to end it this way just have both of the hardies crash and burn or change the rules where you don't have climbing out of the cage element anyway where you can have the big spot that was, that was always going to be there and just have done with it right. both matt and jeff careening through a table and the dudleys pinning them that's kind of what we all expected to see anyway and it was the, really the only outs for this match but they just made a rod for their own back again and i don't know why they do it Oh, yeah, no competition, silly me. Despite my initial scepticism about the cage, I, I think it did help this matchup feel a little bit fresh, at, at the very least. Um, I mean, Eric, obviously, you're not a fan of the, the match format, but for me, it, like once, you, once you're in a cage, the idea that you're going to obey regular tag rules is just nonsense. So I, as soon as they stopped sort of following that after about five minutes and all four guys just got in there. I mean, it's not a tag match at that point, really, but it was certainly more entertaining for it because I, I was just less caught up with the fact that, that just there's a guy standing on apron not doing anything when there's absolutely no consequences for, for getting in the ring and, and uh, helping out your partner. Um, I thought this was like... Uh, I, think my, I think my issue with it was... Sorry, I think my issue with it was like... They didn't do this type of match for the entire history of the WWF, <laughs> and then in the last year we've had it like eight times. 
And that's oh, yeah. the only thing. It's like, it's just so overdone right now that, you know, with any sort of foresight and, and, and booking ahead, they could have saved it, saved something like this for this spot. But they, they, they've burnt it out by now. And I think that's my biggest issue with it. But I agree I, with you that this was the best version of, of, of what yeah. this could be. I, I, yeah, I think we're on the same page, really. I'm, I'm, I'm no, like, uh, aficionado of <laughs> of tag team cage matches, not, not a particular fan of them. But if you're going to book one, then do it the best version of it. That's what you need to give me. And I, I think after about five minutes, that's what these four guys did. I mean, the ending is, it, it, it was clearly leading to the, the fallout of Jeff versus Matt. And again, I share your skepticism, Eric, that neither of them seem ready for that. Nor, nor like, I, I don't know why we have to rush into it. Like regardless of whether, whether, even if they were ready for it, there's, why do you have to split the Hardy Boys up at this stage in the game? Um, apart from just that's what Vince does, you know. Um, I, I think before the match, like Matt was obviously stressed out. Lita's worried about him because he's been acting weird and acting off. He's stressed about like losing his wrestling g- dream and his job. Just far more laid back, and he just throws it all away at the end. Um, and like that, they they have it. There's the descent between the team and it's going to fall apart from there uh, the ending makes sense to me in a storyline perspective but like I said to Lacey it, the storyline is that Matt Hardy was focused on getting the win and keeping their jobs and Jeff Hardy's an idiot like if that's the story and you want to book one of the more popular mid-card baby faces on the card in that way then be my guest but I don't think you're going to be a fan of the results um so, yeah, this is a hard match to really assess. I, I, I enjoyed the action, generally speaking. I, I, I thought it was fresh as it could be between these four guys. Um, the finish made perfect sense from a storyline perspective to me. I just don't think the storyline's going to be very good, nor is it the right time. So it's, it's, it's tough. I, it was probably the, the best thing on the show up until this point, which is faint praise, but... <sighs> There's, there's there's issues here. There's big issues. So backstage, uh, well, not backstage, sorry. At WWF, WWF New York, we see Commissioner Foley. He's there, and he reveals that he wanted to be in Greensboro, but his boss, Vince McMahon, ordered him to hang out here instead. He picks up where he left off uh, with a promo from a promo that he cut on Raw uh, that week. Um, basically, if he still has a job on Monday, he'll be flying to Charlotte to have a few choice words for Mr. McMahon. Uh, back in the arena, uh, Tess beats up Scotty Too Hotty uh, backstage so that he can take his place in the upcoming Battle Royal. And with that, I pass the reins over to our esteemed Battle Royale specialist. And it is the Immunity Battle Royal. The winner of this match cannot be fired for one year. Let's see about that, pal. It's a mass entrance with Test out last for the Alliance, and Team WWF is out next. So who's in this thing? Bradshaw, Farouk, Lance Storm, Billy Kidman, DDP, Albert, Kaz, Saturn, Raven, Chuck Palumbo, Rash Holly, Justin Credible, Sean Stasiak, Stephen Richards, Tommy Dreamer, The Hurricane, Spike Dudley, Hugh Morris, Chavo Guerrero, 
and Funaki. Um, Stasiak is out before the bell rings. Uh, maybe there was still some lingering echo um, from the, the, the waft of the, of the bell, but Stasiak's out initially. Uh, Taz didn't join us, but he's out next, and Paul Heyman is predictably not happy. Farouk catches Helms, and Bradshaw sends uh, Helms over. As uh, Albert drops Saturn out, and then Test eliminates Farouk, Palumbo sends out DDP. I'll note the only thing that happened during this match until the end were eliminations. Uh, Storm kicks Palumbo out. Chavo and Morris, uh, recently fired, hit the ring. Funaki is out. Raven is out. Billy Gunn then sends out Chavo, and Morris and Chavo are out as soon as they're in. Taz knocks out Dreamer and Crash Holly. Lance then kicks Spike over the top. Bradshaw sends out Stevie. And at this mm-hmm. point, I was certain Bradshaw was going to win this thing. Uh, Billy Gunn sends out Taz while Taz then talks shit to Polly. Albert is sent over. Bradshaw then sack of shits Kidman over the top. And so the final four is Billy Gunn, Tess, Bradshaw, and Lance Storm. One of these things is not like the other one. One of these things will not survive. The ring is cleared enough to allow some actual wrestling. Tess then sends over Bradshaw and Lance. Billy Gunn goes to hit the Famouser, but then Tess boots him over the top rope as well. And just as soon as the match started, it's over. And Tess, of course, wins the Immunity Battle Royal, last eliminating former Tess, Billy Gunn. We'll go to Rory first for this one. I only have three things to say about this one. Compare that to the list I had for the gimmick battle royal a few months ago. Yeah, important and all of that. Uh, thing number one, I'm going to mention it because they didn't. The stare down between Raven and Richards. Did we all catch that? I did. Um, I thought I, I thought you might. Like, so yes. Collect <laughs> from your notes there. I have to say, I was taking rigorous match notes, and I, I that one did not make the cut. You're exempt, Eric, but the commentator's not mentioning it. Not even Heyman, although I rather suspect he was told not to. It wasn't there either. I'm not going to mention Stevie being eliminated as one of my three because I don't want to use them all up. Uh, number two, Test had no business being in that match anyway. If he can just enter it because he wants to, why can't anybody else? And the inexplicability of the pop that Billy Gunn received when he went for the Famouser, it was probably the pop of the night, and it held those honours until the last two minutes of the show. And if that ain't going to get you, then nothing will. But uh, again, much like the previous match, this accomplished what it wanted to. But we didn't want it to do this, did we? I don't know. Uh, Lacey. Well, it was perfect time for me to go and get more snacks. So that tells you everything that I thought about this. This is just another... Let's get everyone on the show because we sort of need to now moment. Why the fuck test what it? I don't know. But, you know, as I said earlier, test is Vince's wet dream. Pointless. But as I said, did give me time to go get more snacks. And, uh, Chris White, what did you take away from this immunity battle royal? Yeah, I just found it incredibly hard to care. Um, this was a real low point on the card for me. Um, yeah, just a bit of a mess and just uh, a 
as Rory alluded to, we are so far removed. <laughs> I mean, the gimmick Battle Royal at X7 was like, just we are so far away from how fun that was um, at this stage in the game. And it's hard to believe, like, how badly things have gone since that show. And, like, I mean, comparing, like, Battle Royal to Battle Royal from big shows, like, um, and they're very different contexts of matches. But, like, I just sat there and kind of realised, like, how has this become so so dull <laughs> from where we were? This was so fun not that long ago. And, and now I just have no stakes in the game. I just don't care. Um, and it's quite an achievement that they've managed to do an entire WCW, ECW invasion in, like, this amount of time, make me not care about it, and kill the angle off in, like, so... such such a short amount of time. And this match was just, like, a a culmination of that. And I was like, all these guys just in there fighting for their jobs, and I couldn't care less. And then when the final four were there, I was like oh, at least, like, maybe, maybe Lance Storm's going to win. And then, like, I'll have, like, someone to to care about. And then he was immediately eliminated by Test and Test 1. And I was just like, why why am I here at this stage in the game? What <laughs> what am I watching that none of it seemingly is aimed at me? None of it is entertaining to me. And it, and it was just a mess. I would like to think that the collective prowess of our group could have guessed at least three of the four um, final four with not many uh, incorrect guesses until we had to figure out Lance Storm was the other one. So I think, you know, Billy Gunn testing Bradshaw being the final four of a Vince McMahon Invitational, not all that surprising. Uh, maybe Albert would have been my other kind of so obvious it didn't happen choice. I was rooting very heavily for Lance Storm to win this thing just for something different to potentially happen. Naturally, it didn't. Um, But all my notes say is this match will be forgotten. No better time to start than now. In the back, Booker says he trusts Shane, but not Austin. Booker doesn't want to lose his job because of Austin. Shane thinks Austin will be loyal to the Alliance. We'll see. And I'll turn it over to uh, carry on the pay-per-view for the next contest which is our women's six-pack title match for the vacated women's title, um, which sees Leah, Jacqueline, Molly, Ivory, Trish, and debuting Jazz all go at it. Jazz comes in and takes out Leah from the start with double a couple of double-arm suplexes, forearms, Leah hits a head scissors. Molly and Jackie are then in, and they go at it. Molly wants to test her strength. But Jackie uses a leg sweep and gets a two. Jackie with a hip toss and a drop kick. Ivory then in with rolling pins. Ivory slingshots Trish into the flapjack. Ivory then with some punches. And then the alliance team, triple team Trish. Uh, poetry in motion to Jazz by Lita. Molly goes up with a molly go round. Ivory hits a face buster. Lita hits a twist of fate and a moonsault that gets a two. Lita with a double clothesline. Jazz in with an eye rake but misses a tope. Trish hits the stratisfaction on Ivory and wins. 
it was a clusterfuck, but at least it was fucking short. Eric? Yeah, uh, I think that there's not very much to be said about this match. Um, is it, are we at a point now where, where we're like pre disappointed that people didn't get over in the WWF? Because when I saw Jazz, I thought, fuck, I really like Jazz and I don't think they're going to have any idea what to do with this gal. Um, because she's not as big as China. Uh, she's big, but she's like, she's not like China. And she's not all that sparkly of a personality. And of course, she's another one of these folks where Polly took her and said, okay, these are the three or four things you do really, really well. Let's book you to mask all the other things you don't do very well, which is talking and, you know, really working a, a, a traditional match. I mean, she had, she's a good wrestler, but she wrestled a lot of the guys in ECW and those were spot fests and frankly, um, check out our companion uh, indie wrestling show to see if she's done anything of any value on the indies wrestling wise. But anyway, jazz is good, but I don't think she has, she's going to be used properly. So that kind of took the air out of it here. And when she didn't win, because then it's like, okay, they're going to debut this person who could be different and could be awesome if used properly. And she's just going to be another one of these folks uh, in this match and she's not going to win. So there's talent here. Like, Jazz, I, I just, you know, talked about. Lita is improving. Molly is a fabulous wrestler. And Ivory is great. There's a lot of potential here, and Trish is getting better. And I, obviously, Trish is the one that they see dollar signs in, and I don't blame them. But these these could be women having decent matches. Instead, they're just squished into a four-minute nothing match to get Trish over at the expense of somebody who could be valuable as they're debuting. So, I don't know, just another example on the show of like, wow, how much different this could be if they were paying this one uh, aspect of their card any mind. So probably overthinking it here based on how they booked their women's division forever. But, man, I really see a lot of potential here, and this just ain't the way to do it. Yeah, it's very much a you've got someone who's different debuting, and, oh, fuck it, just let's give it to the uh, underwear model because you know that worked so well when they used did it with sable uh what are you oh, eric you gonna come back I, I just wanted to say like why not just run back the uh birth of fail under blaze angle here where alundra wins this big feud against yeah you know, i think it was the bull nakano blow off and then boom all of a sudden before they gimmicked her up with all the harvey whippleman bullshit you had this badass looking chick with big up teased hair in a black, like, leather suit. This is enormous chick just beating the absolute piss out of Lunder Blaze on Ron. It was really cool, and they fucked that up, too. But the point is, like, why not bring in Jazz here like that as opposed to just having her be another face in the crowd as long as they don't uh, – except for if they don't plan to do anything with her. So I think I would have done that here if I had any aspirations to push Jazz as somebody as a credible opponent to Trish, which I think she absolutely could be. Anyway, that's it. Why – yeah, I mean, not much more to say than Eric. I, I think is we've come a, some distance, I suppose, since like regular. I don't know. This this felt different to like some of the matches, women's matches we'd have had on pay per views in the last couple of years or or three years or so. Um, and there are just some good workers in there, and I feel like 
we're getting to a point in time where you've you've got to give them a chance, and I, I don't think putting six women of varying degrees of experience and and abilities at, at present in there for four minutes in a bit of a mishmash is is really giving anyone the opportunity that they deserve, whether it's through their talent at the moment or or potential. Um, and is is disappointing, and uh, and I think there's there's room for this division to grow, and there's room for all of these women to do more in the ring. Um, and they are all at different experience levels and and stuff at the moment. And I'd like to see them get. A, a better chance. I, I thought for what this was, um, for for four minutes, I thought this was okay. Um, I, I, maybe it would have been, I don't know, it doesn't really make sense for someone like Lita to win here, even though she's probably the most popular in the match, but just based on her involvement in the storyline with Matt and Jeff, although you could have played off on the fact that she's won the title and they obviously lost their match earlier. That might have played quite nicely into that story, but the match was okay. But I think it's probably a sad indictment on uh, the level of detail and care for women's wrestling in the WWF. Rory, round us out. Yeah, I talked about the state of the women's division in our last show and on the last 25 shows as well. So I'll keep this one very brief. Trish Stratus won here, all well and good. Very pleased she did. And I can say this without any fear or favour because Yully isn't on the show with us today. Four days later, she's defending the title against Stacey Keebler in a gravy bowl match. Ipso facto, QED. So, we uh, followed that with Vince being backstage giving Team WF a pep talk. He has every confidence in them. But if they lose, none of them will ever be forgiven. And he tells us that the Austin turning was all bullshit and it was never going to happen. And then we go into the main event of the evening, winner takes all, Team WWF versus Team Alliance. Feel the gravitas there, Lacey. Feel the gravitas. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Then you wonder why my comments have been so brief. After no fewer than 12 minutes of individual introductions, and yes, I counted them, we are off with Austin versus The Rock, teasing us with what should have been the main event, and they'll dangle it in front of us again a bit later, too. No denying that these guys are going for it here, and I really could watch them just punch each other all day. Who needs any of that move nonsense? JR reminds us that Abe Lincoln once donned the lycra, and it is written out of most biographies, as for two exchange Thez presses. Shane is in to break up the first pinfall attempt, Dan. Get used to that. Rocky then takes down Booker to little reaction, and there's Shane again. Jericho into even less reaction, but the crowd do stir when RVD takes over for the alliance. They share some smart stuff here, including a lovely spinning heel kick by Y2J. He whiffs on a drop kick, and RVD gets off rolling thunder for a two. Not the only bit of getting off when RVD is in the ring taking place right now, I would wager. <laughs> well, you're all chortling at that, said he. Hopefully, Simba blocks a wall of, a walls of Jericho attempt. Oh, come on. Kane and Angle square off now, and the Olympic hero sells Kane's duplo offense like, well, a hero. The big red machine with a jump off the top rope, stand up, then do a clothesline thing, and that's its official name. But Shane, is it? Oh, that's enough of that now, eh? 
Undertaker versus Angle now, and this one brings back bad memories, as I'm sure it does to anybody who listened to our July 2000 show. It's Booker now instead, though, and Shane, I said, that's enough. Taker with old school to Booker, then something vaguely akin to mat wrestling. Shane does it once more, then scurries off as the crowd wake up for Austin versus Undertaker. Stone Cold misses the squash your opponent on the ropes thing, that really does need a name, then receives old school. And Shane, I said, fuck off, mate. Nice neck break by Angle to the dead man, but no eliminations as of yet. Big Show does Big Show things, as JR accuses him of occasionally making dumb mistakes. Angle blocks a choke slam and hits an angle slam. Lummy. Booker then with the scissors kick and Spinner Rooney. RVD with the frog splash. And naturally, there is Shane with the elbow. So Shane gets the first elimination because, of course, he does. <sighs> they pretend to atone for this by having him take a choke slam, a tombstone, and a lion salt before being eliminated himself, but that doesn't atone for anything. Anyway, down to four on four. Jericho then takes some substantial heat from the Alliance. That's his punishment, no doubt. He does catch RVD with a roll-up for a sharp two-count, though, then tags out to Kane. Hard clothesline and power slam, but he gets taken down with a spin kick. RVD then with the five-star, but no cover, because he can't. Kane is straight up into a choke slam. Or at least he would have been if we didn't get a very early bonzo-gonzo, with both teams getting involved. And with that going on, RVD then has another go, this time with a spin kick off the top rope, and that is enough to send Kane to the back? I'm not sure we needed a delay on that one. 4-3 Alliance. Undertaker now beats up all four of those of consummities. Why do we bother? Last ride for Angle, and he is able to see off Booker and his chair. Austin, though, is granted the honour of executing the stunner, and he drags Angle on top for the 1-2-3. There goes the Undertaker. But no mark, that does not square things, and I am not editing my fully loaded rant. <laughs> so the Fed are in trouble here at 4-2 down. Of course they are. Rock with a snap DDT to Booker, but Angle is there for the save. Austin then does the business for his team after a Rock Samoan drop to the book, but a roll-up does eliminate Booker. I think they're trying too hard to protect people here. Just have them take a signature move. Anyway, 3-2 now. And in front of a very silent crowd, Jericho hits the appropriately named breakdown on RVD. I mean, seriously, that thing shows so much air, you could register it on the Beaufort scale. But things are all tied up at 2-2. Angle with a lovely ankle pin. Yes, ankle pin on Jericho for a two count. And I hope Kurt remembers that one in the future. It looked great. Hard chops then by Austin to Jericho and his always excellent superplex. But Jericho is out there shortly before three. Then we get some slight miscommunication between the two men. And they wisely take a second or two to reconfigure, Austin sensibly tagging out. That's a good example there of two old pros realising something wasn't working and then quickly fixing it. A lesson there for any youngsters watching, as we are duty bound to say. Jericho puts the ankle lock on Angle, but the Olympic champ is able to roll away from it. The crowd have only really popped for the eliminations over the last 10 minutes or so, and that is a big concern. Frequent tags between Angle and Stone Cold, and our Austin clamps on a headlock. Double clothesline then eats up a few more seconds as JR and Heyman share some rather listless banter. Rocking again, and even that doesn't get the reaction I think they wanted. Maybe the sharpshooter will, as Angle taps out almost as quickly as Mr. Perfect did at SummerSlam 91. Almost. But WWF lead by 2-1. to one. Austin grabs the tight on Y2J and almost steals a pinfall, but then tries his own version of the walls, yet he doesn't get very far. The rattlesnake is bleeding from the mouth but can block the lion salt. And a near fall off that. Missile dropkick by Jericho for a close near fall of his own. And the audience are not biting on them. They quickly exchange roll-ups. Austin grabs the tights. And there goes Jericho. Again, out of nowhere. So, Austin be the rock, eh? Or at least it will be shortly, 
as for now Jericho does give Rock the breakdown and sneers his way back up the ramp. The Rock kicks out of the resultant pinfall attempt though, and now here comes Undertaker to dress Jericho down, and why do I think Chris is all too used to that happening? So, Greensboro finally do rally behind their man, but at the moment they have to endure Stone Cold stomping away on him. Rock with those electric punches yet swiftly gets leveraged over the top rope and bangs his knee on the announce table. Huge chops by the rattlesnake, he knows his audience, and then they scrap outside like only these guys can. The Brahma Bull hurtles over the table to get at Austin, and at last the intensity levels are somewhere close to where they need to be. Stone Cold with a spine buster, and now his attempt at a sharpshooter. It's a little bit better. Maivia gives it a spirited saldo, and it makes his call to the ropes virtually Dickensian. Something is bound to turn up, and it's Austin with the WWF title belt. He misses with a shot, though, and now Rocky with his sharpshooter. Steve gets to the ropes with the belt gripped tightly in his hands, which is a very nice touch. Stunner is blocked, but the Rock gets his own. No immediate cover, though. The WCW champ rolls over slowly, and it's one, two, and it's Nick Patrick yanking Hebner out of the ring. He pays for that with a rock bottom. Oh, no, he doesn't, as Austin does that to Rock, and Patrick counts. Not this way, not this way. No, it's not this way. Here's JR on commentary. That sure wasn't a slow count. JR, it's not the time or the place. Still quite funny, though. Then Patrick gets nailed by Austin. Breath bump to Hebner again, and then there's the Stone Cold Stunner. Austin tries to revive Hebner, but back comes Angle. He grabs the loose WWF title belt and attacks Austin with it. Rock then swings into the rock bottom as Hebner comes to. One, two, three. The WWF win. Who would have thought it, eh? Vince comes out for a rather tossed-off celebration. And there we are. Oh. This match was so, so, so predictable and so, so plodding that I went through nearly a loaf of bread and toast. It's a thing that we've always seen with Survivor Series matches is the slightest of thing will cause a a person to be eliminated, which never would happen in any other match ever. Um, But with this one, even more so than others, they didn't want their bigger stars to look bad in, in their defeats. You then have the pointlessness of Jericho turning on the rock, because, of course. And then we have the even more predictable and pointless turning of Kurt Angle to then be the mole to then help the Fed win. Me, Dell, and Yully mentioned this last month that after everything that's happened in the States in the last couple of months, the one person you don't turn is Mr. America. It then, they've turned him to be the mole for the Fed, yet he comes out of this to, to go forward still as a heel. Eric, as, as our resident American, I'd, I'd like to know what your thoughts on this is, but as the personification of America at this point in time 
to me, as an outsider looking in, makes fuck all sense. And then, of course, obviously, you know, Vince had to come out at the end with his... I've just jizzed on the back of some young girl look on his face, raising his hands. For, for everything that this is for, this was massively underwhelming. Sorry, comes to you next. Yeah, well, I, I would agree that uh, patriotic fervor is off the charts. So maybe having a guy that could you could I guess exploit uh, right now uh, be the face of your company or one of the faces is probably a good idea. Uh, but I think it just demonstrates how they didn't book any of this ahead of time or they've overthought themselves into just not doing I mean they've, they've done the obvious but in such a non-obvious way I guess. I don't know. It's just It never came together. The point is like this entire angle, this match really, it it just was, it left a lot to be desired. And Rory, you mentioned Jericho taking heat, I believe. And I just wanted to note that's the first time Chris Jericho has had any heat. Um, what happens when you book an invasion angle and then you lend several of your best people to the other side, you end up with the big show. Chris Jericho and Kane as three of the best five people you could possibly garner to represent your company. So this whole thing was flawed from the beginning. If you don't have the people in, and we don't have, I mean, realist, go back and listen to the WCW volumes from earlier in the year and the Fed shows that came after. Like, there's a, a really good financial reason why a lot of the people that we would all want to see in this invasion angle aren't here or aren't here yet. Um, and Yet they went forward with this with the people that they had, and I think that was a big mistake. And I think that in hindsight, like by basically relying on the WWF, which isn't wasn't all that deep at the top of the card when this whole thing started anyway, due to some of the attrition and injuries and that sort of thing that we've seen. They booked themselves into a corner from day one. And they never figured out a way out of it, even up through and including this big blow-off match, which as a match was fine. But you don't have Nick Patrick and Earl Hebner as the, you know, uh, coming in at the end to say, you know, as important elements of this, like, company war. They're referees, for crying out loud. Like, it just was all fucked up from the beginning. They never figured out how to get it back on track. I don't know that they even really cared. I think maybe this is something that they just need to get out of now. I, I bet if you ask him, if you ask Vince McMahon, off the record, a couple cocktails, a little bit of truth serum, I bet he thinks he just wants to get out of this now and move on from this whole, from WCW ever existing, other than a reference point from a long forgotten past. So I think this match kind of accomplished that. The finale of the WCW versus WWF war was Steve Austin versus The Rock. And I think that's all you need to know. I'm not sure I'd waste truth serum on Vince McMahon for this topic, really, Eric. <laughs> no, the truth very much speaks for itself in, uh, in this. But yeah, I quite like when it came down to Austin Rock, but more on that in a second. Chris, appropriate that you take us home on this one. This match, again, is, is difficult to rate because it has all of the problems that the entire Invasion storyline has had. Like, just 
laid out in front of you. Like like Eric says, you just have to look at the teams and you know that this has been fucked up. Like pretty much from from day one, they've they've made misstep after misstep, and that's largely why we're getting the culmination of an angle that you could have made last eighteen months. <laughs> like easy if it, if it, you'd had the the right people and done it the right way you could have got like all of the history of those companies and they've just blown through it, it how they have to get here in just a few short months and this match has the culmination of all of those problems that being said like as a 45 minute wrestling match like some high drama and by WWF standards some star power in there um I mean, I would say it had high stakes, but it's probably one of the most predictable wrestling matches that there's ever been. Um, I thought it was okay, which is, again, not good enough for this story. Um, the, part of the match part of the matches went too long, um, and then there were parts of the matches that I thought I was really into, and those bits got cut off and didn't quite last long enough. I've never been a fan of the Survivor Series trope of like guys being pinned quickly with stuff that no one ever gets pinned by. Particularly the most egregious one was RVD's kick on Kane that RVD has done many times, but I'm almost certain he's never pinned anyone in the WWF with it. And this is, in theory, the biggest match in company history. Um, I have no idea how... RVD doesn't break his leg doing that kick, and it really looked like he might have come close with this one as well. Um, I mean, it's Shane McMahon, so the fact he's in a match is a, is a criticism in its own right, but like his role was, was played really well here. He never tagged in until it, it, everyone had hit a finish on a guy, and he was just consistently a persistent nuisance, making saves and breaking up pins. And when he did tag in and hit an elbow to get the pin on the big show, which, believe me, getting him out of the match early is, is no bad thing. Um, there it is. For a cheap elimination. But he Shane was then taken out within 90 seconds because The Rock got straight in there with him. So it's like, if you've got this match with Shane McMahon in it, you've gone wrong somewhere. But once you have got Shane McMahon in it, I think they got that part right at least. Um, and I mean... Coming down to Rocket Austin, it's it's the only way they could do this, considering the path they've they've been on with this story. Um, but it just felt like a a bit of a, a whimper, really. I liked um, Paul Heyman sold it well at the end. Credit to him um, and and Jr. as well. Uh, and like, of course, the show ends with Vince with his arms raised on the stage because what else will the show? What else? It, like, it's just about the McMahons, isn't it? It's not about WWF and WCW and ECW. It's just been about Vince and Shane and Steph, and that's like half the problem. Um, there's there were too many people in this match that I just did not care about, um, and I think that undercut the any any sort of drama which would have been lacking due to the sort of predictability of it as well um i i mean it's ultimately I, i'm rambling a bit but that's because the the match is a mess the story is a mess i think in terms of like the 10 guys in there i think they they did their best quite frankly uh and by survivor series 
five on five matches, I thought this was fine, but there's just so much surrounding it that's atrocious that I, I, I don't have any positive feelings about this match, really. It's really hard for me to say that I enjoyed it because I don't know how uh, uh, any wrestling fan really could enjoy sort of the culmination of all of this history and wasted potential and so many people, yeah, like like we've spoken about, like where are all these guys and girls going to have to wrestle moving forward? And I just think the WWF has not been on a great run, to say the least. And uh, like storyline-wise and overall sort of coherence to the product, um, and and there's a severe lack of alternatives out there at the moment. I I think it's it's quite bleak. And honestly, to be here now in November, when we had everything from the well the the rumble at the start of the year was tremendous, and through to the the simulcast and then X7. I, I'm pretty astonished when you take a step back and look at how 2001 has gone. Like, there's been a lot of errors. And this match, just through no fault of the 10 guys in there, and through no fault of the work in this main event, um, this match just captured it all. I'm going to be that guy again, and I'm going to name drop Jack Derrida on a pro wrestling broadcast. But then I know who doesn't. <laughs> The original man. But I think we need to, much like the great man himself would here, we need to separate the text from the signifier. The text was the 45 minutes of wrestling action we were presented with. And I think that was pretty damn good, actually. I think all three of you are underselling it. I think I understand why, because you're beaten down by the realities, which I'll get to in a second. So I can see where you're coming from. But when you've got at least half of the guys in here, you know, they know what they're doing. And they are out there, the bulk of them are out there for a good half an hour at least. Uh, you're not going to get a dud here, anything close to it. I thought so much of this match was excellent. The only issues I had with it were the standard Survivor Series tropes that you've all rightly brought up. But as long as the Survivor Series match continues, and so many of the man babies who follow the WWF these days uh, won't let down their guard and allow this increasingly pointless event to be pushed to the side, then we're going to have to deal with it. But so much of the actual in-ring action was top-notch. Again, just look who's in there. But we look at the signifiers, which basically all you three have decided to focus on. And you're quite right, too. Thank goodness the in-ring action managed to keep its own head above water, because otherwise this would have been the most pointless 45 minutes since, insert recent Aston Villa match here. I just, <laughs> The second half, of course. But... Everybody knew the outcome, and there are very few stakes in a Survivor Series match at the best of times. But when the whole, go back to what I said at the start, the whole future of the company is supposedly at stake, and your crowd in Greensboro don't give a fuck until it comes down to The Rock versus Austin, that should be telling you something, shouldn't it? How little this story has mattered, and we'll get to it in a couple of minutes when we break down the whole last four months, but nobody cared about this because the finish was so damn obvious from the very second it started which is why as much as i take eric's point completely because it's correct that wwf versus wcw ecw comes down to the rock versus stone cold steve austin 
the built-in ludicrousness of that, which can't be denied, I still sort of wish they just done that match here and kept the Survivor Series match a bit earlier in the car and done a four-on-four with the other people. It, it's going to come down to them to decide the future anyway. Why not just give them one more 25 minutes and have done with it? Instead, we had to have the winner-take-all that nobody bought, nobody was interested in, even from a nuisance value perspective. Not one person, not one on the message boards anywhere thought, well, I think the WCW might win this because it might make Raw more interesting the next day. Just never on the cards. Now, who are we dealing with here? We already answered the question before they asked it. And that is why they, in a way, got lucky that they decided to end it in November while they had a ready-made 5-on-5 Survivor Series match to just plug in. But unlike early matches on the card, I wish this is one they had thought a bit more about and just given us Austin versus Rock for final control, as stupid as that does sound on paper, and dumped a 4-on-4 Survivor Series match elsewhere. And the angle return leading into another turn, I'll talk about more in a later edition. But... Thank goodness for the people involved, because otherwise I would have been all over this one and no mistake. But I cannot bag too much on a match with Austin, Rock, Angle, RBD, and yes, even Jericho to a point, who all brought the goods in this one. They weren't resting on their laurels. They could have been forgiven for doing so. But when they were called upon, their A game was brought to this one. I feel it was rather wasted, but it will at least make this match withstand possible repeat viewings although I'm going to leave it hanging in the air as to how many of those there will be. But that does end Survivor Series 2001 and the WWF roll on. Yay. So, Chris White, let's come to you for a summing up of Survivor Series 01 and a score rating out of 10. Oh, you had to come to me first. It's such I, I, hard... I, 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 you're right. I had to. It's such a hard show to grade. Um, I think... My main event uh, enjoyment is just so severely down, dampened by the meaningless of it. I mean, it's so undercut by the rest of the show as well. Like, So even if the stip is like all the lo- the guys on the losing side who don't have a title are going to be fired, well, just guys who wrestled at Survivor Series. Well, Christian's got the European title, so he's fine. Dudley's the tag champion, so they're fine. RVD's got the hardcore title, he's fine. Austin, he's a champion, so he's fine. Angles the mole, so he's fine. Test won the battle royal, so he's fine. And uh, like, what's the? We've got what Booker T and William Regal, and and so like, is that is that really what all this was for? <laughs> In theory, now the one big fallout from this show is that like Booker T and William Regal don't have jobs anymore. In storyline, is is that what this is boiled down to? After all of that. Um, I just, ah, man, I enjoyed a lot of the work on this show, probably a lot more than I think in, in some of the earlier matches, certainly than, than other people. But I feel like to give this show above a five is like, would be sort of really unfair in the, it's unfair on what I've been given as a, storyline you know like this invasion angle just goes out with the biggest of whimpers um despite being a, a perfectly good uh wrestling five on five match but ultimately this is one of the most disappointing angles of all time and the way this show ends and 
what happens on Raw the next night, it's just been a colossal waste of time. So, with that in mind, and kind of like how little this show matters, when in fact it should be one of the most important shows in company history, as it was sold, I'm going to give it a free out of ten. Uh, Chris Lacey, you debuted a new scoring system last month, but you've mentioned toast once too often today already, I think. So a score rating out of 10 integers, if you will, good sir. Uh, so I said at the beginning, this bored me to all of the the snacks. Uh, for For what it was meant to be, which is, you know, the big, colossal blow-off of what all of us said fantasy booked is going to be the greatest wrestling moment ever, you know, the fact that we got, you know, the two companies going against each other and it really did fuck all um, I can't give this anything more than a free because other than if you take out the Hardys Dudley's match, the rest of it was pointless and for all the big stakes this was meant to have it did not deliver so yeah complete tosh all the snacks peanut butter on toast by multiple rounds (laughs) couldn't help himself Eric, what have we got to round us off? yeah, I, I also give the show a three um, I think that there was some good work here and there. The main event, yeah, as a as a booked clusterfuck, it was fine. And kind of same for that tag team titles cage match that I was so sour on. For what it was, it was fine. Um, some things on here I really hated. We don't have to rehash Regal over to Jerry. In the hindsight of the rest of this card, it seems rather meaningless. Um, but, yeah, just a lot of missteps here culminating in I don't know I don't know what I was expecting but I was hoping for better even though as when we get to the overall recap of this I think we'll really struggle as to how we could have maybe done this differently and have it made a lot of sense so uh, maybe give them a little leeway there but yeah this was just a, a subpar show kind of everywhere you look at it three out of ten I should say, listeners, we've already had a discussion about our end of year awards show, which will be coming December the 31st. And we are actually going to drop the worst show award this year because there hasn't really been a bad show. And then this one came along. I'm still not going to put it in because it would walk it and it'd be a very boring listen. But it's a good job because this would be, yeah, this would take it, wouldn't it? I'm a bit higher than you, but only just, not that it really matters. I'm going to go for a four. I think there was enough quality in ring action here to take it close to the realm of being an average show. Any main event with that star power, you cannot dock. You, you just can't. You shouldn't. You wouldn't be watching this promotion if you tried to, although you did. But so many Minro problems with this program, all linked back to the macro one, that this did not matter a fucking jot. 
everybody knew what the outcome was going to be. I said it about the final match. I said it before the show, and I'm saying it again now. It existed because it was Survivor Series season, which just happened to be, by lock or by judgment, where the invasion angle came to an end. And as soon as it started, the invasion angle was only going to end one way, and so it came to pass. For what we got on screen, I think there's enough to give it a four. And in its own right, they're not really a recommendation. Possibly the main event, if you can push all the other stuff to one side, as difficult as that might be. But this is a success for Vince McMahon, right? Something so cut and dried and obvious, this is how he wanted it. And he got it. So this is no doubt a 10 out of 10 for him. His celebration at the end was completely genuine. But for the rest of us who just want to watch quality pro wrestling shows, very much a letdown.
So as mentioned a couple of times in the last hour or so, Raw the next day completely changes things up. The reset button is pressed, and it's pressed really bloody hard, to the extent where there's so much to discuss on there, there is no way I'd be able to get it in this program. So in a few days' time, a brand-new volume will be landing with myself and Davinda Vargas talking about that Raw segment by segment. But what I'm going to do with the boys here now is we're going to look back at the whole invasion angle, because I'm not going to let them off that easily. And we're going to have a bit of a free discussion over what transpired over the last four and a half months. We're going to let everybody come in with whatever they want. They can hop into any part of the timeline that occurred between July and November. They can talk about any personnel, any specifics. I'm going to throw it open to the group for the next half hour. We can all chime in whenever we wish. But I do want you to bear in these three questions as we go. So you don't have to answer these straight away. You don't even have to answer them directly. But I just want them to bear, to bear them all in mind as we natter. And they are, number one, was the right story told here? Number two, should it even have been an adversarial contest between the WWF and the Alliance? And number three, can we blame everything on, as we've mentioned a lot over the last four months, the lack of name value on the Alliance side? But those are just your starters. You can take this any way you want. And let's go in reverse order from our pay-per-view summing up. So, Eric, I'm throwing to you first. The entire Alliance invasion angle, you lucky, lucky person, leap in. The water's lovely. I won't say everything because I'll need to save it to obvious, you know, to, to, to keep up with what I'm betting are going to be far more comprehensive takes. Um, I, I don't, to, to directly answer your questions, I don't think that the story lived up to anything close to what it, it could have been. I don't even think they paid off the story they built as well as that sounds. I think. I think I have to kind of punt on your other two questions because I think where I come down on this is the value component of it is the only thing that ended up mattering in hindsight. And I think because of that, I don't think they should have run the angle at all. I don't even know that they should have acknowledged WCW. I'm not sure how that works, but I think what we've learned is it wasn't a question of can you run this angle without some of these guys. It's, you know, should you? And I think they tried, and now we realize that they shouldn't. I mean, Paul, Nash, Goldberg, Flair, Sting, Steiner, and Hogan. And, you know, I add DDP to that list because they had him and wasted him, but we don't even need to factor in DDP to this list because he ultimately wouldn't have made a difference in this angle if he was the only different person in it like you sub in Shane for DDP and I don't think it really changes much my point is like they tried to run this angle without those people and I think we realized that you needed most or all of them in order for this angle to have a chance because of what we talked about in the main event with the WWF basically having to lease its top guys to WCW to make this work anything I think I'll kind of stop there except for making two other points which are going to be very difficult for another member of our group to hear right now <laughs> i think they made a mistake by even acknowledging ecw i think that brought the i think that brought the gravitas of the angle down i think it weighed down the value of the wcw side and i think that they 
I think by bringing ECW into this, they lost focus unless their purpose was to make ECW seem equal to WCW. Along those same lines, I think RVD should have been kept separate from this entire situation. I think because you need to ignore ECW to make this angle worth anything of two actually competitive national wrestling companies at war with one another, you bring him in separately and you build him in front of an audience who largely doesn't know who he is. It's hard to, hard to hear, but it's true. He's been on Raw here and there in 97, I think. But you can't bring RVD in as an equivalent to somebody who was regularly featured three or four times a week in WCW. You just can't. So I think bringing ECW into this cost them a lot of focus that they could have had. Bigger picture, don't run the angle because of the people you didn't have overall. And I think that they just kept stepping in it. And by going forward, it just didn't. We got what we got because they didn't acknowledge these obvious flaws from the beginning. Lacey, pick that one out. I am going to concur. And even both me and Yoli said back when we did Invasion, they could have quite easily done this without having ECW. You know, it has meant that I have been able to see my boy in there against the top Fed stars. You know, he's been in the ring with Rock, Jericho, Austin, Angle, and showed that he's fucking good enough. And of all of the alliance guys that weren't already in the Fed, he's the only one that has made a mark. Booker, Booker's been good, but he's really he's been seen as Shane's lackey. But RVD is the only one that that comes out of this with any credibility. Um, who knows what they're then going to do after this, but I would imagine I can't see him being much more than the hardcore title champion for a little while, um, but he's clearly done enough to show that he should be intercontinental champion, you know, be pay-per-view level, get maybe going for, for the world title, but not, you know, there or thereabouts as the champion just yet. But you're right, we could have done it without ECW. The fact of who turns up the very next night, why why didn't you wait to have Flair? You know, certain other big name stars of the WCW era contracts are free for use from next year. You Just because you bought it, doesn't mean you have to fucking shoot it straight away. Um, I know they do think that wrestling fans have fuck all memory, but you could have quite easily left this till next year when you could have, you know, it wouldn't have to been so reactionary of his WCW. Um, yeah, there was a, at least a little bit of time when the lawsuit first came out with the World Wildlife Fund that I thought They've gotten out here. They could change the name and use WCW as a moniker just to get off the the WWF thing to then do a rebrand if they were looking at doing a rebrand later on. Because obviously, you know, the British courts have have decided that they are not allowed to be called the WWF anymore. Um, I don't know how long that's got until it is, you know, enforceable, but 
they have got to change the name um, because the Wild 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 World Wildlife Federation. Coming out of this and looking at it as a whole, yeah, we've had some fun matches. Um, we've seen a lot of WCW guys come and go. Um, the Natural Born Thrillers being most of them have fucked off. Chronic fucked off. The guys that they got as part of the 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 buyout is said. Other than Pet, uh, DDP and Booker, the rest of them are cannon fodder. Helms has done himself well coming up with a hurricane gimmick. I reckon they'll keep him about because it's a fun, fun gimmick to go with. But as you said in the, in the pay-per-view review, when it comes down to the end of it is Rock versus Austin, who are both fed guys, why should we care? Another real big issue for me is how, I mean, it's it's minor to what you two have already been discussing, but the overemphasis on McMahon family drama, and I mean, the the sort of like fantasy booking wrestling fan in of me in me, the idea of a WCW WWF invasion isn't about the McMahon family, like regardless of the the talent and the timing to have it's Vince versus Shane versus well and Stephanie it didn't completely center around the McMahons but it was it was too much and we've seen too much of it over the last few years and then particularly when Austin defects and we've got McMahon family drama and then at the heart of it we've got Vince versus Austin and I love Vince versus Austin it's one of the all time great wrestling storylines and that we, the WWF have had and certainly that we've had the privilege of covering on this show but if you're going to do an invasion with WCW and ECW or not with ECW whatever that's a, that's a separate decision you you don't need to center around McMahon versus Vince versus his kids, and then Vince versus Austin, and those two tropes have been very heavily relied on, um, and and it undercuts the significance of any sort of invasion because it becomes McMahon family drama. Um, the best way would to do this would have been to not do it yet and as you've both alluded to you need to wait until you have some bigger name WCW talent you 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 want less emphasis on WWF defectors you need to get someone like Sting or Goldberg like that this is a different and maybe that wasn't possible or financially viable or any of the above but if you want this to be a success, then you need to wait until a date where those be- they do become financially viable or legally possible or whatever the, the issues are. There's, there's guys that I wouldn't necessarily say 
like I'd be in a rush to bring in. But if you if you don't have Flair, Sting, or Goldberg, or Hogan, Nash, Hall, like if you if you don't have that, and you've already like wasted a guy like DDP, um, and and made him less than nothing, um, and then you get to the, and you like the the two big guys leaving the invasion are stone cold Steve Austin, and it's not any form of him that that has any resonance with WCW or ECW for that matter. It's it's Stone Cold Steve Austin and and Kurt Angle. And it's all about Shane versus Vince. And I, I just think like we've we've just lost track. Like we don't they don't even know what they're doing. The, the, and the, the biggest and first mistake is that when WCW dies, Vince cannot help himself he has to go on Raw that night. He has to do the simulcast. Like, it, it, and obviously then you have the the hook of that with Shane having signed the company away from under his dad's nose. But that's like a, a crippling mistake to the success of this storyline from note one is, is that it's not WWF versus WCW. It's, it's Vince versus Shane. That, that and they never righted that wrong. Our first real sighting of WCW in WWF colours after the simulcast. Scott Hudson and Arn Anderson on commentary for a match between Booker T and Buff Bagwell. A match that wasn't that bad really when you think about it, but nevertheless in Tacoma, Washington. <laughs> A week before Monday Night Raw just happens to be taking place. Well, I don't even need to complete that sentence, do I? You know where it was booked the week after. And Vince McMahon decides, based on that reaction, of completely the opposite side of the country, that WCW can't exist as their viable own brand, should tell you what you need to know here. And everything we got from that, was done with that in mind. As if we didn't already know what Vince McMahon's opinions of WCW were, the remaining four months made it clear. These guys are losers. People don't want to see these guys. There are no dream matches here. They should be lucky that we're affording them a, even the merest chance of an opportunity, pal. You know, All of that sort of thing was thrown into this and they were never given a chance to look even remotely close to the WWF and I include swapping half of the fucking roster over to the Alliance and even then you could probably take Austin out of that but otherwise they were just warm bodies and the invasion win for the Alliance was a complete red herring with the invasion pay-per-view that is total red herring, which again Austin was just brighter than everybody else and had the savvy to hide in plain sight until the very end of the match and then join the alliance so there you go, that's a WWF guy getting one over then anyway, and so it continued they weren't allowed to look even the most vaguely credible of threats now they were only ever called a serious threat by JR, that's all they ever called them Never once called into question the existence of a company, a serious threat. And that's all you're getting. 
I absolutely take the point that they didn't have the top WCW stars here. That's staring everybody right in the face. You cannot and should not ignore it. However, you you can sit down with a pen and write this stuff. Yeah. So if you want to make Booker T, Rob Van Dam, I'm just picking names out of a hat now. Chuck Palombo, Lance Storm. If you want to make them look important, and some and a group of guys who could you know, theoretically topple your company, then you can do that if you want to. You don't have to wait for Sting or Goldberg or Flair or Hogan to be there. You can make that happen. It's not difficult. You have the final say in this. If you want them to go mana a mana with your company, then do it. But he doesn't want to which is where my third question came in. As much as we are burying the Alliance in the way that they themselves were buried, and we're right to, can you imagine if it had been booked exactly the same way and Sting, Goldberg, Flair, Hogan, Steiner, Hall, Nash had been here? Eric, back to you. That's a great segue because I kind of wanted to see if we had discussed how we might like in a perfect world, how this could have gone. And I, I just, I really want to get this out here because I haven't, I haven't known how this like ideally should have gone. And I, I just want to run this as a potential alternative. And I, and I think what happens is you basically do run the same angle, but you assume you have everybody else. And so, and you have the matchups and, and everything, but you keep the guys truly on the side that they they're coming into this on. So I think you end up with the final match between because the idea is where do you go after the invasion? Where do you go when this is all over? So I think you end up with a team something along the lines of and it ultimately doesn't really matter, but Paul Nash, Goldberg, Sting, and maybe either Steiner or Booker with Ric Flair versus Austin Rock, Angle, Undertaker, and Triple H, assuming he's healthy. You know, we're kind of assuming best cases all around here. And they're with Vince, so we've already incorporated the Flair Vince stuff. And I think that could have added some gravitas ahead of time, right? But I think the finish here is where I really want to come in here because I think you can rerun a couple of things to really tie up histories here and set up maybe for Mania 18. So match is going along, and all of a sudden it comes down to Austin alone uh, versus a couple of the the team WCW guys, however we want to get there, fine. It doesn't matter who comes down. Hulk Hogan and the NWO shirt. He gets in the ring. You know what we're doing? We're going to rerun whose side is he on, but he's wearing oh, an baby. NWO shirt. <laughs> and he gets in the ring and he looks at Austin. He looks at Vince. He looks at Flair. And all of a sudden he starts unloading on Flair, who's in the ring by this point. And maybe let's just say Hall and Nash are the two leftover guys to, to keep the w, the NWO continuity. And all of a sudden Hogan unloads on all those guys and he rips off the NWO shirt and it's red and yellow Hogan underneath. Drops the big leg. Austin maybe stuns, stuns him, gets the pin, and you end the show with Hulk Hogan in the red and yellow staring down Steve Austin with Vince McMahon in the middle of them setting up Hogan versus Austin at WrestleMania 18. That's how I would have done it if I had my perfect universe. Um, 
but here instead we got um, we got what we got here, and it's because they didn't have the names to even have the chance of doing something like that. I mean, Booker T was the biggest guy they brought in, and you're not even going to come close to anything with that. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to get that out there to kind of culminate, you know, how maybe this could have looked in a parallel universe. Eric, that's not so much a license to print money as a license to quantitatively ease. Oh, my God, you're wasted. What, don't I say even wasted on these programs? But don't leave us just yet, if you don't mind. We still want to get as much of you out of your can before you get headhunted. Uh, Lacey, any more on any of this, including, I'll just throw a little extra question. Could they have made this last until Mania? Or was this a bit of a mercy killing that we should all be thankful for? I think with where they were, I think it was a mercy killing. But as I said, as I said earlier, instead of ju- they didn't have to shit the bed as soon as they did. They could have quite easily left this for another six months, got mainly your 18 out of the way, and had had that night the night after Mania, because obviously everyone watches the night after Mania, you have Flair come out with Shane and him say, Remember Dad, when I what happened last year, we're back, we are with WCW and at that point have the NWO, have Steiner, have whoever else is out of contract. Uh, that's why Warner deals, and that you can then come in with this bunch of grade A WCW talent. You know, what you could then do at some point is if you were, if you wanted to have the ECW guys, you could drip feed them in, but don't have them as ECW as such. But you could have. Heyman be their mouthpiece for them as they used to work for me in ECW, that's where I know them from, but you're not having a team ECW. You know, the whole fact that Steph was the owner of ECW just made ECW a mockery in the in the story that we've had. Where you could have quite easily had it that I don't know, someone does something to Paulie and Paulie goes I'm going to get you back and brings in some of his boys but you know as as they say you know we can all sit here and fantasy book and get on Smackdown and get into the old create wrestler and make all the WCW guys and do the storyline that we, we want we have to deal with what we've been given and what we've been given is nothing near what any of us would ever have hoped to have had and ever wanted to have. And maybe it's a, a sign that this shit is best left in your imagination of what ifs than actually seeing it play out in reality and be a massive disappointment. I mean, I don't think there's any justification for for them of blowing through what could have been one of the biggest storylines and long-running storylines that that they've had in in such a short amount of time, really, and and, and just get it wrong over and over again. You, You don't need to bring ECW in when they did, 
Um, but like Lacey says, you, you could introduce them now. Like that's like a bump to get you through to to Mania season where you pay it off at WrestleMania. And I mean, we don't often talk about pay per view buy rates, but like this shows like does it does like sixty percent of the buys that Invasion did. Like there's a it's like three hundred fifty thousand drop off in pay per view buys between then and now. Like they just lost. They just lost it. It was it, the, the train derailed, and they just never got it back. And there's there's so many ways to do this better. Um, and that they just got it wrong over and over and over again. Um, and uh, and I think ultimately, like it, it just comes down to Vince. Like maybe it's like you can you can fantasy book it all you want, but maybe with Vince McMahon in charge. There's only one way this is ever gonna go, and even if, and even if you did get a few of those top top WCW guys, say to just pick like three at random, even if they were there, maybe it it wouldn't have mattered, and we'd have been having this same conversation, except there'd be more emphasis on how they were all wasted rather than how they weren't there. You know, like this is all this is only gonna end how it did with a quick, decisive <laughs> victory for the WWF over a very weak-looking alliance. Um, and, and and when the alliance do pick up wins, it's because of someone like a, a guy like Austin turning or, or Angle turning or WWF guys carrying that side of the company. And maybe just with... If you're booking this as a fan, just in your imaginary pro wrestling landscape you can create a an 18 month storyline that involves some of the biggest stars of the last decade some of the biggest stars in wrestling history and the matchups are near limitless but if you're booking this with Vince McMahon in 2001 then maybe this is this was just all inevitable and this is how it was always going to go and we were suckers forever thinking there was a chance that it, it, it wouldn't go this way, but I think it's ultimately to me one of the biggest disappointments as a wrestling fan in terms of like storyline and wasted potential that I'll likely ever see. I don't know there's not many chances that you get an opportunity to do something on this scale. You you can do individual storylines and individual programmes, but there is no WCW now. There is no rival promotion with years of public rivalry and wrestlers jumping back and forth and the boom period the boom period of what wrestling has been over the last few years and the WWF coming from behind to to be streets ahead of WCW to the extent the company died it will never happen again and. The business is worse off for it. The WWF is worse off for it. Us as fans are worse off for it. And I just I just think there's no winners here, but maybe this was the only way it could ever go. It was always going to end this way. And the Invasion pay-per-view, because it was such a good event, self-contained in its own right, just served as a false dawn. But now we can look at it four months removed. That pay-per-view with the almost obscenely good buy rate that it did, as you rightly brought up there, Chris. Even that only came three weeks after they burnt through 
a potential year worth of storylines by forming Shane's WCW, Stephanie's ECW, having Heyman involved. They did all of that in one two-hour Raw to the point where it's a memorable segment, but it's not an especially good one because they just panicked. And that showed right there, right there at that very moment that they just wanted to get this out of the way as quickly as they possibly could. And I'm going to say it now, if Vince McMahon felt he could have ended this at SummerSlam, then he would have done. But we all know, because he told us what Vince McMahon really wanted to do, the very second he confirmed his purchase of World Championship Wrestling, he said so during the simulcast. He wanted Ted Turner to walk down the aisle at WrestleMania and sign over the papers there and then. He probably still does, probably keeping it in reserve for WrestleMania 18. But that didn't happen. Probably not going to happen as much as he wants it to. So what's the next best thing? Ladies and gentlemen, I give you WWF programming from July to November 2001. We're back in November 2021, and that is the Alliance and Invasion dredged up for hopefully the very last time. Uh, Chris White, thank you so much for joining me on this one, my man. Yeah, despite uh, some bleak conversations about yeah, the state today, of the wasn't business, it? yeah, um, it's always it's always a blast to hang out with you guys and, and talk wrestling. So thanks. We talk about them a lot, don't we, Chris? We have, we've had milestones during the eight years of this project. This was another one, although perhaps millstone might be a bit more appropriate. Yeah, for, for all the wrong reasons, this is, this is quite a big one. In the rearview mirror now, well, almost, got two more shows where it's going to come up over the next <laughs> six weeks or so. Lacey, I'm sorry I had to end this way, Bucko. I know, all my hopes and dreams of, of revived ECW. Oh, wait, oh no, we do get it in a few more years. Um, No, we don't. (laughs) The Sandman versus the zombie. You're already penciled in for that, penned in for that one. You do know this, don't you? Oh, the joys of ECW, (laughs) WWW, fucking. One Night Stand 05 is only three and a bit years away, so (laughs) just keep chalking them up on the wall, my friend. And Eric, there we are, where it all began for you and I, really, when we changed the format of the WCW shows in September 2000, knowing deep down how it was going to end. And now we've actually lived it. I'm not sure it's any better than it was at the time. Is there anything more on brand for WCW than repeatedly getting your hopes up and having them squashed uh, to increasingly... um, uh, to, 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 to just to degrees that, that somehow keep getting, I don't know if you want to say lower or higher, but this is the depths of disappointment, and it's fitting that it comes on the heels of shoehorning in the WCW storyline that we've all wanted for uh, the entire time the companies have been had been competing for one another. This may be the most uh, symbolic way to dispose of WCW by running the most disappointing storyline in wrestling history. It's pathetic, albeit in the best and most dramatic sense. It could only occur this way. Like, and naturally it comes, naturally they die only being represented by former WWF guys, which is (laughs) even more meta. And I would hate to think that Vince McMahon had that thought, but 
some small percentage of me thinks that he did. I just think it's like, it's such a, WCW deserved better than this, no matter how much we, we make fun of it. And despite my prior comments, yes. and it, it just, we knew how this was going to go. And even still, it's, it's, it's such a, to such an egregious degree, the way that they just bought this company and torched any of its intrinsic value. Gosh, I, you know, there's a certain flame that I think went out in a lot of folks that were watching it that were maybe a lot younger wrestling fans at the time. And I think if this didn't extinguish the flame for a lot of us, it certainly dampened it. Uh, and, and those feelings are being revisited as we go through this again. Well, it's the fabled five million, isn't it, who never came back? Yeah. Maybe they've been listening to our programming for the last eight and a half years, so <laughs> haven't cut the ties completely. They're the group of people we do this show for anyway, but now that WCW is completely and utterly buried 60 feet under, I still hope they stay with us. But I wouldn't blame them if they didn't, but they are still going to. Of course, it's the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. Why wouldn't you? So, yeah, there we go. Uh, very downbeat and low-key for probably the most important show in company history, but we can only deal with the, only deal with the cards that are dealt our way, everybody, and they were very much marks. Uh, just a bit of housekeeping before we wrap up. Uh, if you did miss our show on the Rebellion pay-per-view, which already seems a very long time ago now in many, many ways, uh, with Chris White and I, do check that one out in the archives. And in probably about a week's time from now, uh, volume three for November 2001 is going to land where Devinder Vargas and I look primarily at that raw, the day after Survivor Series, where everything changed again, 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 and everything went back to how it was before. Uh, we'll be doing that segment by segment, match by match. So do listen out for that one. A couple more shows coming before the end of the year. Uh, our Vengeance review for December 2001 where I'll be on with Dell and Pete. And, of course, as mentioned, our end-of-year award show. We can't wait to divvy out some of those. And that will be dropping, as I said, in timeline on New Year's Eve. So do look out for that one. But one more time, it's gone. The invasion, WCW, ECW. Leave the memories alone, and we'll be very happy to do so, I would wager. From Chris White, from Chris Lacey, from Eric Landstrom, I am Rory McNamara. And for the Alliance, for the invasion, <clears throat> I am Are falling rain for the cause.